0: hello everybody and welcome to the 118th episode of mtg fast finance the podcast that knows that the magic economy is a feature not a bug mtg fast finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of magic the gathering finance collection management and speculation
1: a quick message from our sponsor face-to-face games face face games.com provides competitive pricing on magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the US and Canada. Check out face-to-face card pricing via mtgprice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your
0: host, James Chilcott, aka at mtgcritic Critic on Twitter. My co-host as always is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpen, and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the
1: Gathering. Good afternoon, James. How are you doing today? Very good, Travis. You you? Yeah, not bad at all. Uh Glad to be here and looking forward to uh, sharing some great information with everyone. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, what's on the agenda this week? James, this week we have a show in four segments. Segment one, our top movers. We will talk about the cards that have moved the most in price this week. Segment two, our cards to watch. We will outline some of the cards we think may see a rise in price. Segment three, our metagame week in review, there's a couple events we can touch on. There's the Eternal Weekend, there's a SCG Baltimore, Modern Classic, a Modern Mox, GP Birmingham Legacy event. Uh, so there's a couple of items floating around there. And then finally, segment four, topic of the week, we have special guest Jesse Mason of Kill Goldfish on to talk about an article he wrote called Magic Capitalism. That's quite, uh, quite a conversation, so that'll anchor the cast this week. Let's get started. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Fair to say we're at extra fast
0: this week. Yeah, yes, yes. At this MDG is the fastest episode fast. This yep. It's going to be the, the shortest episode ever, <laughs> or whatever the opposite of that is.
1: Yeah. <laughs> this is the fastest that MTG Fast Finance can be. Segment one our top mover is Ronus the Indomitable from Amonkhet. Uh From 12 to 17 this week, a bit of a bump. i uh, seen Standard Play again. Um, refresh my memory. Is Amonkhet rotating this fall? It is, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, at this point in time, to see Amonkhet cards rising in price is sort of miraculous and I would be dumping these as fast as possible.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's going to continue to be a casual card. It's going to be a card in EDH. It's going to be a card in the fringes of modern, but it at rotation, this card slides hard and you get a chance to probably pick up foils cheap sometime this summer. Yep.
1: Uh, next, we've also got Gideon of the Trials from cat fifteen to twenty-two. Uh, same story, um, and I agree. Yeah, they're, they're both they'll both see play afterwards, but they're also going to take a pretty big heart hit after rotation. Gideon might survive a little bit better because he's got that modern and legacy angle of like tribal Gideon decks and playing it with uh, you know extra turn cards that you lose the game type of thing. So there is a little more demand, I think, for Gideon of the Trials, but still in a position to uh, be shipping these if you can now.
0: I mean, my money's on Gideon dying when they take care of Bolus. so maybe we don't get too many more Gideons. But if he survives and continues on in the narrative for several more years, then extra Gideons potentially make trials even better, right? Have they, yeah, Have they, they? I mean,
1: it would. Have they killed the Planeswalker yet? Nope. Oh, have they, they, they killed have. Planeswalker characters? Yeah. Hellspin. Well, mm, yeah, but she's not actually dead. No, she's dead. She got taken to the underworld.
0: She's in the version of hell on that plane, and she can't get out. We haven't seen her since, so... No. Probably, I mean... She's dead. Like a Marvel character is dead. Like right, right, they'll, right, They'll bring back whatever is is profitable to. To bring back, right? But yeah, yeah, they
1: can kill a character. Well, I mean, they killed her, but like in the same, at the same time, they said they're bringing, like, they essentially hinted that she was coming back. They like gave her the gold mask and everything that you, you know, you've seen on Theros. So we know she's not actually gone. Uh, Gideon, or I would say Garrick is almost the closest simply because he seems to have wandered into the wilderness and disappeared a couple years ago.
0: Oh, Ur, uh, Ur's, is, Urs is dead. mishra's dead. The. Um, well, well, that's
1: pre mending, though. Yeah. Sure. You mean like have modern planeswalkers died? Since Lorwyn?
0: uh who Post was didn't Ral
1: eric die i
0: don't know did he yeah i think Ral eric died no um, i think, actually asked him because somebody somebody went to save karn on new Phyrexia. i'm pretty sure it was ral but if, if it wasn't ral it was um
1: uh, i guess vencer died right they did kill vencer yeah vencer died let me just see who rescued karn in the meantime leyline of the sanctity Uh, M11 foils, 66 to 100. Um, so I imagine there's no stock left on that. Uh, that's the original foil printing of Leyline of Sanctity. It's only shown up one cents in MM15, uh, Modern Masters 15. Um, I would say that this is on the table for any other expansion sets, but we also don't know when those are coming, really, other than Battle Bond. Uh, so these are in pretty good shape, I think, overall on the foils. Yeah. Um, Back to my earlier point, it, it was Venser that died saving Karn, not okay. Rouse Eric. Okay. Yeah, I forgot about that. So, there you go. I guess he dies. So, maybe they will kill Gideon.
0: Um, so, next on the list, we've got Defense of the Heart Foils, which is one of my picks from not too far back. Um, these are the original ones from Urza's Legacy, moving from 30 to 55 or so. That's about 75% gain. Um, There's only the two foil printings. Uh, It's an underplayed card in EDH, and the other one is a Judge Foil promo that's not going to get reprinted. (laughs) So um, both versions were good picks back then. This one probably still has a little ways to go, but I wouldn't make it a priority anymore. Okay.
1: Um, Then Mishra's Factory Spring Editions from Antiquities, uh, 52 to 95, so not quite a double up. Um, I mean, all the Antiquities Mishra's Factories are... Have been juggling and moving around a lot. Uh, I'm sure none of them even have much of a enough of a stock to even really have a stable price, right? I would expect. Uh,
0: yeah, the, anytime anybody posts one anywhere near old pricing, they get snapped up again. Yeah. So they've been they they have s- retraced a few times each of them. Spring is the least um, desired, and it making a strong move towards 100 means that they all probably post up over 100 sooner or later and never return back below
1: yeah i noticed that winter's uh 200 (laughs)
0: uh no winter winter was up as high as 600 recently but i don't know what the lowest price copy is right now
1: yeah lowest price is 430 markets 190 sure Kurt Ape from Arabian Nights, uh, 6 to 11. Original printing. Yeah, another original printing from Arabian Nights. So I think it yeah, looks like a lot of the stuff from Arabian Nights is probably going to start getting picked off. Well, it hasn't already. Even if it's not reserveless, you've still got that ancient printing style that uh, has been so popular. So that's these are And these are all likely to stick. You're just not going to see the inventory hit the market to pull the prices back down.
0: Yeah, and I think if Zoo was a better deck in Modern right now, then and Kurt Ape was a... Uh, uh, four of in it then you would have seen these pop already um but the versions of of zoo that most people are running i'm not even sure if they're still running Curt Ape these days i mean that was from like the wild nactyl Ape
1: duo that i think has faded from from relevance yeah yeah i think the tribal flame decks still appear occasionally um but not with uh you know now the blood Bride's back they were they were getting played again but i don't think i think Curt Ape's time is is over so next on the list we've got the
0: Emerkel, the promised end foils that you your was your pick last week. Um looks like you got people to mop up the remaining f- five or ten copies. Thirty-eight dollars to seventy, and I think that holds rock solid. Um it was a great pick right at the at the moment of the tipping
1: point and no big surprise to see them gone. And I will make a point of noting that I own zero copies. So <laughs> <laughs> for, uh, uh, whether or listener, not that makes sure. you feel better or worse about the pick. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, listeners certainly do. Um, I've got a couple that I picked up pretty cheap. I think I picked up mine in the twenty-five to thirty dollars range last year, uh-huh. um, and managed to get a couple more in Europe, including three Russians at seventy-five each.
1: Ooh, Russian foils. Yeah, Ooh, those are going to be what two hundred. I would hope at so at some point. Uh, plateaus, revised edition, white border, 75 to 150. Big move for plateau. Uh, oftentimes considered the worst dual land. Savannah moving as well, it looks like. Um, I see in your note here. So, and I know Scrubland had, had moved a good bit, although Scrubland, black, white tends to also be considered bad, but is secretly pretty decent in legacy, especially with the taxes decks. But, um, you know, if, you know, an overall raising of the boat, I guess, of the low end of uh, revised duels. It would seem. I mean, this is,
0: again, bottom of the barrel for duels. But the thing is that, like, I went ahead and did, let's assume that Legacy is a static or fading format and Ditto Vintage. So the demand for for revised duels is predicated on the continued success of EDH, where they are, you know, targets for every player that's serious about building up the value of their deck and, and power of their deck. Um, that's not all EDH players. There are plenty of EDH players that are happy to play at like a moderate cost and power level. Um, it's a good way to play the format, actually. Um, but there are still tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of EDH players in the US alone that certainly intend to own all the duels for their at least one of their decks at some point. And I did a little rundown of the top 25 commanders uh, this week in a spreadsheet form, figuring out what the color demands were. And they are almost equally split so there's, from the perspective of demand for duels from EDH, there's almost no reason that a plateau is any different than an underground sea. Mm-hmm. I
1: I do wonder if, if, for a long time, the numbers have supported um, other dual land and, like, fetch land combinations being better than what were, you know, better than the polluted delta, flooded strand, um, underground sea, tundra, you know, the blue, white, black, white, blue, black, Other other color pairs have been more popular, but still haven't moved. And I wonder if the price memory and sort of legacy of the cards is just so strong that the lesser the less prestigious color combinations like red, white uh, just are going to never really beat those prices, never really climb higher. I, I,
0: I, I can't I think you're dead on. Like, I can't picture a world where Plateau meets uh, underground C, because as long as there is some legacy and vintage demand and collector demand and the prestige of the blue duels having been higher for 10 15 years the you know there there are plenty of vectors that put that will push it out ahead of plateau for a long long time mm. but in a world where it was just cdh they are they should be relatively equivalent so and it's not like there are more copies of one than the other they're all printed at the same rarity in the same set um, so, I, I would I would expect a long, slow price convergence over time on the assumption that the formats will play out the way that we expect.
1: Yeah, it. Wooded Foothills is starting to catch up, I think, or has been closing the gap on Flooded Strand and Polluted Delta in modern, despite the fact that it has been more popular than those cards in modern, I think, since the format's inception. <laughs> and, it, like, the prices are still separated, but, yeah. Overall, all accurate, I think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right, so next on the list, we've got
0: um, Temporal Aperture. This is the first of our reserved list uh, nonsense cards of the week. This is a fairly bad um, artifact from Urza's Saga that in theory moved from $5 to 17 It's the kind of thing where if you managed to get copies real cheap or you had some sitting around, you don't need to be in any reason to rush out and dump them because this reserved list stuff is going to inch forward and upward um, so you can buy listed or trade it out to somebody who actually if they have any intention of playing it at some point to get into something you need or a better spec or what have you but you know even the one though that many of these reserve list cards have been retracing I've been tracking the re- retraces and when they pop 200 300 400 percent the retraces are often something like 20 40 70 percent depending on how big of a jump they were enjoying so I mean those are not retraces to fear or any reason to be like you know, the bubble is going to pop. People keep talking about this reserve list bubble. And I don't think they understand what bubbles are. <laughs> bubbles are where markets are irrationally exuberant, um, out of sync with the actual value of the assets in question. So you can drive up real estate in a neighborhood really high by everybody bidding and taking on mortgages they can't afford. And then later when they shift the percentage points up on the mortgage, Sixty percent of the people in the neighborhood in Florida that bought into these mega houses can't afford them anymore, and they all that entire real estate market collapses. That's not going to happen with the reserve list because the there, there's no nothing to pop the bubble. There's no needle, other than them reprinting the reserve list. There is no downward pressure um, for most of this stuff. So the the, the Greatest risk any of these cards endures is that cards are printed that are similar enough that the majority of the use cases can shift to the new card. But Wizards has been pretty cagey about making sure that doesn't happen. And in a lot of cases, like for instance, the printing of say Growing Rights of Itlomok in the face of Gaia's Cradle becoming an explosive reserve list target, um, only adds consistency to a deck that can run both.
1: Yeah, not to man- Yeah, yeah, and not to mention too that. Um, even if they print stuff that's similar enough in effect that the, you know, it's the use case shift type shifts types of thing. Um, there's my wife home and my dog letting me know, uh, the collector demand still exists as well. Uh, and it's quite healthy. Um, and I mean, that's the case for a lot of these, you know, Arabian nights, and stuff like Curd Ape, right? Like people aren't buying that because the card's good, uh, and because it's useful. They're buying it because they remember the card favorably. Um, so, you know, even if they, when they print a better curd Ape, like Wild McAddle, it doesn't mean curd Ape's not still popular amongst a certain crowd.
0: Yeah. And the fact that the market price and the ask price represent major gaps on a lot of these cards doesn't really mean anything. Like people hate paying, quote unquote, too much. And if the card was 100 last week and this week it's 200 or 300, they just can't, get past the psychology that prevents them from paying that price. But six months down the road, <laughs> when inventory hasn't flooded back, in, back into the market, it's and minor retraces have gone on, if something goes from 100 to 200 and retraces to 165, people are going to start paying that price no problem.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: we've seen that with card after card after card. Now, for something like a temporal aperture, yeah, I mean, don't hold your breath. It's not the kind of card... With those kind of things like you have four or eight, 12 copies or something that you're planning on buy listing within six months or something. That's probably fine. You don't want to have 600 copies because, because the market just isn't deep enough for you to be able to unload them in the time frame you want. But would I be scared to be holding a hundred scrub lands right now, fearing a retrace? No, probably not. I'd be pr- pretty happy to sit on those for a year and see where things go. Yeah. I
1: wouldn't mind having a hundred scrub lands. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So next on the list, we have Donate, similar kind of thing, $5 to seventeen fifty. This one actually has like some fringe use cases in EDH for sure. Because um, you can give them bad things and try to cost them the game in some kind of wacky deck.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, oh, look, another Mistress Factory. Uh, this one, The Fall from Antiquities, 40 to 180. Uh, I don't know if it's going to hold quite that much. Uh, that's, Winter has always been the most popular and that's, the current market price but like we said there are 400 so maybe this can stick at 180 for the fall antiquity copies
0: yeah the order is reverse from winter right in terms of popularity so winter then fall then summer then spring sounds reasonable uh well spring and summer is debatable um but the yeah i i think you're right this probably retraces some but even if it lands at 100 after going up from 40 that's still uh 200 uh Hundred and fifty percent gain.
1: Yeah, hundred fifty percent gain. I would say the antiquities, Mistress factories, all are probably really worth keeping an eye out at your local stores because those are the type of cards that wander into a store that a lot of people typically aren't interested in, especially if you're in a smaller market. They might have some play on it, which you know prevents a, a few you know some people from being interested in it, if they might have been anyways. Um, so you might be able to score some uh, antiquities, Mistress factories of varying condition levels at really good prices at your local stores.
0: If I had the time to go out and do a road trip around the continental U.S. right now, um, it'd be a really great time to have a Google Maps guided tour of sports card stores um, Mm. that will end up having some random magic binders on behind the till from when they dabbled in that at some point. (laughs) And I'm sure there are plenty of good magic cards still sitting around waiting to be discovered in your local neighborhoods. I
2: used
1: to daydream about wandering into a random hobby store and middle of nowhere and uh, finding like a sealed alpha box on a shelf or something. <laughs> yeah. Don't we all. So
0: next on the list, back to back to back to back uh, a whole bunch of the buy a box promos have taken off as people realize that us and others were calling out the ascendancy of search for Kanta buy box promos and Japanese versions uh, as well as growing rights of idlamox and how everybody decided to just target all of them. Um, so treasure map primal amulet arguels bloodfast and thematic compass all moving from 350 to 450 percent from the like five to ten dollar range up into the 25 to 40 dollar range all of these have uh reasonable futures i think that primal amulet and thematic compass are probably the most reasonable for edh arguels bloodfast is fine i guess treasure map seems more like a a standard play because that's where it's seeing the most play it's not that good in edh Um so i'd be unloading the treasure maps i think into this hype but the other ones i'd be fine holding
1: yeah yeah they're all they're all reasonable um yeah i i wanted to pull the trigger on some of this but i haven't had a chance to turn my attention to all of it and figure it out and a little too late a little too late for me on that one it looks like um next up meditate from tempest also reserve lists 5 to 30 supposedly this is the one that you was you draw four cards and you skip your next turn or something like that draw four cards skip your next turn um, so you know reserve list demand not you know nothing that we haven't seen before but uh, no less valid than it has been looks like cheapest copies at 25 right now on TCG player so uh, and the market was under eight dollars so pretty good pretty good move there and I can see these selling at 2025. 20, so did you hear about this guy trying to pump Meditate this week? Uh,
0: no, I don't think so. <laughs> so apparently he, he posted a fake tournament report suggesting it was a four of and a legacy deck that top aided somewhere. Oh, again, this is not the first time that's happened. Yeah, it's a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> so, I mean, on that basis, ignore it. But on the basis that Meditate is reserved list, <laughs> um, it's going to retrace, but not all that hard. So I mean, it went in theory went from five to twenty nine, right? So it could settle anywhere in the twenty to twenty five dollar range, or even get pushed higher. the pe- The people that are buying reserve lists at this point do not seem scared to invest. So, um, you know, even when the FOMO folk fall off the side of the bandwagon, these guys keep driving things higher. There have been numerous cards over the last year that have retraced only to be purchased again at at midpoint prices that were significantly above their originals.
1: Yeah. Yeah. uh, So (coughs) wild circumstances aside, it still doesn't seem like that price is uh, unlikely to stick. Mm -hmm.
0: So Jihad from Arabian nights in theory, going from 150 to 1100. um, I, 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 can't see
1: anybody paying more than a few hundred dollars for jihad it's just not played anywhere right uh no not at all i mean it's it could have a little bit more to it simply because of the name um ra- you know over any other random reserve list rare type of thing uh but 1100 does seem a bit steep
0: yeah i i think this retrace is really hard i mean 1100 is not real that's posted ask price right. not market by any means yeah so I think you'll be, you'll struggle to find anybody able to sell these out anywhere between more than 200, 250. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, if I had to pick one card on this list to
1: not even be close to the stated ask, um, this would bad. be odd. Yeah. Um, Knights of Thorn from the dark, one twenty five to 10, another reserve list card. Uh, also terrible. If I recall, four mana, two, two pro red with banding. So a lot of power level there. Um, <laughs> Jump from one and a quarter to 10 uh probably like a five or six dollar card realistically uh, but it was yeah. a rare so <clears throat> supplies on the lower side i mean banding is clearly a bug not a feature because you have to look it up what it does yeah uh mere retriever from mirrored foil seven to sixty two uh don't think that's gonna hang around <clears throat> Mirror Retriever is used in KCI, Quark Car- Clan Ironworks, the modern deck. Um, it's used in a couple other combo loops as well, but KCI I think is the most notable at this moment. Uh, $60 foils not happening, uh, but 20 15 to 20 25 sure. I could see that. So this has been reprinted a bunch of times, but
0: the only foil printing was in Modern Masters, which was in 2013 and was a low-volume set. So, and the foils there are going for two dollars. So,
1: there's no way this holds sixty. It's the same art and everything. Yeah, um, and it's a combo piece, and we already know that combo pieces tend to have trouble sustaining really wild prices in the way that like staples like Stampcaster Mage do. Decks
0: like KCI are sometimes flash in the pan. I think KCI is actually very strong, um, but it's also the kind of deck that not that many people will pick up, similar to Amulet Bloom. Um, it just doesn't appeal to as wide a range of players. Um, so no reason to be chasing these foils anywhere north of $20, that's for sure. I, I don't buy for a second that people care that much about original printing, uncommon Mirror Retriever versus Modern Masters. Um, you could also, you could even argue that the modern masters printing is the more rare of the two and because it uses the same art and the foiling process on 2013 was solid. Whereas the 2015 tended to be chipped because of those weird cardboard packages. Mm-hmm. Um, all of, all of that leads me to believe that if you can get any price on, on your mirror tree or foils that you have sitting around over $10, you'd be happy to exit. Uh,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I would be happy to, to ship these where I could.
0: Uh, all right, so Goblin Bombardment from Commander 2013, in theory going from a dollar to $9. Um, I'm assuming this was in some kind of streamer deck this week that I haven't caught up on.
1: Uh, your guess is as good as mine. Seems reasonable. This is four printings, including an FNM.
0: Yeah, one of the things I've noticed about some cards that show up in Commander decks is that people target them without bothering to check inventory on the others. Mm. Um so apparently it's in a last scene in a legacy deck that went 5 and 2 in the legacy challenge on Magic Online in mid January as a 3 of <laughs> Uh
1: yeah. I I would expect a heavy retrace here. Uh yeah. I it's hard to imagine that people don't um don't check inventory of other printings of a card before they buy it out. That's not a a minimal investment in terms of time or effort. Again, I should copy and paste you a full page of the kind of queries I get in Twitter chat all the time. Sure, sure. Uh Savannah Lion from Revise a dollar to ten. Uh good luck, I guess. Good luck to all involved. I don't know. $10 for Revised Savannah Lion seems nuts. It's been printed an infinite number of times. Revised is humongous. Um, it's hard to imagine anyone ever paying that much for this card.
0: Actually, I have a note
1: on on Bombardment. Yeah,
0: there are a few printings, but it is a little more complicated than that. The original printing was in Tempest, right? That's a long, long time ago. And the only supplemental printings were in Dual Deck, Speed vs. Cunning, and uh, Commander 2013. And all of them are essentially at $10 now. So, I think we're wrong. I I think that Bombardment probably holds. Um, I don't know if it was targeted or this was natural demand that led into a cleanup. Um, But whoever is buying this, what's the EDH number on this card?
1: Is this a... Uh, It's probably pretty good. Uh, Goblin Bombardment. Uh, What the heck? 9,200 decks.
0: Okay. Pretty we, don't know what we're talking about. we need better research on Goblin Bombardment. So, supply is really low. It hasn't been printed in any major sets. Um, and it's in 9,000 EDH decks. That explains everything. So, that holds that price until it gets reprinted somewhere, at which point it crashes hard.
1: Okay. I guess. I mean, I still think $10 for Goblin Bombardment's a little pricey, but... Eh, sure. I mean, it's arguably
0: a mythic. In this particular configuration, because one of them was an FM promo. Those go for 20 plus already. You have the original Tempest printing that was 20 years ago. And then gob- dual deck speed versus cunning is not a product most magic players own. And Commander 2013 was five years ago. Well, I it was
1: only in one of the decks. I don't know how much the inventory on the dual decks comes into play. It's I don't have like a sense of the numbers for that. Obviously, most players I feel like haven't bought them, but they're still, I wonder if there's just piles of them sitting around somewhere not Not, say the goblin bombardment needs to be a 50 cent card i just i wonder what the inventory on that looks like well bombardment at 50 starts getting people to crack things bombardment at 10
0: with no other targets in the deck probably not
1: yeah i don't know what else is in that deck off the top of my head
0: all right so anyway moving on uh savannah lions uh is not played in anything (laughs) so far as i know no it's no good in legacy it's not good in modern um unless you're playing cat tribal in edh Unlikely to be a thing. It does have nostalgia value. It was the best one drop in the game for quite some time.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is true. I guess that's the best thing that it has going for it is People remember it fondly. For I sure. think there, I think like gradable revised copies are probably hard to come by. But other than that, there's a million I mean, this could be people leaning into the the ongoing
0: unfurling of various old school style formats that are pushing the allowed years further and further. I saw notes from Northern Europe this week um, on Twitter suggesting that basically pre-modern extended is now a format that has a annual championship. Hmm. So that was like
1: 96 to 2003 or something like that. (laughs) Pre-modern extended yeah so is that legacy that stops at meiden
0: um it is legacy that stops at miriden no because it's 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 cut off at the front and the and the back it's like those particular years so you can't play pre96 and you can't play post 2003 i oh.
1: believe oh what a mess so
0: it's like if you were making front of frontier <laughs> get your cannons ready but Apparently, this is like a big format in the country in question. I'm trying to find the tweet where we were discussing this with people. Um, oh, I know, I, I posted something. One second, let me track it down. This was amusing. All right, I just said I just posted something about like how many formats are being launched this year.
1: All uh, right, well, well, James, checking that. Our last card for the week, Ventifact bottle. I don't recognize that name. Oh, it's a terrible, terrible Mirage card that I just buy listed. Oh, that is weird looking. Ventifact, it's like an organic bottle uh, from Mirage 50 cents to $17 supposedly. I've seen near mint copies at nine. This is this is really bad. This is really bad. Don't play it, but it's a reserveless card, I guess. So, I don't know. Maybe it could be a couple bucks, but good luck ever finding anyone who will buy it from you. <laughs> Exactly.
0: So pro tour player Joel Larson was who posted the original tweet and it read pre-modern, it's called pre-modern, is growing faster than anticipated in Sweden. And the 17th of June is the Swedish pre-modern nationals. Find lists updated in the official Facebook group. And he was running a rebels deck with Lin Sivy. And if you've ever played against that deck, it is the uh-huh. most annoying to play against ever. Because every time you target one of their creatures, they just even if it's dying or being exiled or whatever, they're just replacing it with another one. Right. And they can all search each other up. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs>
2: that,
0: that deck is gross, gross, gross. Um, how, how gross it is in this format, I have no idea. But the most egregious thing about the, the image that he posted was that he was using modern Zendikar full art lands with his um, pre-modern cards.
1: Mm, that should be a crime. Yeah. So
0: this this Facebook group, I'm trying to see how many people they have all right uh 100 127 people following it (laughs) so so pre so pre-modern everybody get your frontier decks your pre-modern your popper your old school 96 97 get it all
1: ready for vegas yeah all right let's hop on over to segment two our cards to watch uh what do you got for us starting Mm -hmm. off here i've got some
0: conditional picks this week um, these are not things you necessarily just jump out and buy. Let me talk you through it. First pick is Judge Foil Elishnorn, which I know is a card that you went pretty deep on at one point and then had to unload because it got
1: reissued in in consecutive Judge Foil packs, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I owned one, but they were $700. So that still might fit the definition of deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. So right now you can get them at about
0: 230 or so, 230, 240. There really aren't that many left in the market. This is, we're seeing this again and again with judge foils. The first time they come out, they're priced too high. The second or third time they show up in the judge packs, which all happens usually within about a one year span, they crater and then you get an entry point. And then a year later, they've all dried up because anybody that wants them grabs them and then they're just gone because they're never being reissued in that form again once they get off the, uh, Put, potential issuance list for judges um so i would say sell target on these is somewhere between 300 and 350 um the card's been as high as 700 before as you said stock's getting low no reprint chance excellent collector piece like one of the best collectible magic cards ever because it's written in Phyrexian font which must have been a nightmare for the graphic designer to pull off um yeah just a great card and it's Modern and legacy playable here and there, certainly good for cubes and EDH. There'll be enough demand to keep these high over time.
1: Is it finally time for me to go back and replace the one I got rid of? Might be.
0: And I think that, like, this is the kind of thing, like, you might, if nobody listens to me <laughs> and the last 10 or 15 copies in North America sit on the shelves for a little while, then you get to, like, take advantage of an eBay 25% off sale or something and really drive it home. Um, But if you're worried about it it going up in the future, then I wouldn't hold off because there's no guarantee that you're going to get
1: enough time. Right. Um, Sure. I think that's probably a good point, given how much I paid for this initially and how far down it's come. And we know they don't reprint these after the fact, like, um, you know, they can run back a second judge printing. But after that, we've never really seen them bring the judges back way, way later. I don't think, although I'm willing to be wrong on that. Uh, Even still pretty reasonable. All right, first uh, my card. first, yeah, first card this week is uh, Void Winnower um, from, uh, what was that? It was Battle for Zendikar. Battle for Zendikar? Right. Yep. Yeah, right, right. Yep. Battle for Zendikar. I can't remember which set it was in. Um, This is the nine mana 11.9 that everyone who thinks they're funny says, Uh, I can't even, because it's the one that prevents your <laughs> opponents from casting spells with even costs and uh, blocking with even converted mana cost creatures foils currently i'm sorry go ahead nope go ahead foils right around 10 to 12 dollars there's like one or two at that price range then they jump up to like 15 and then they ramp up real fast after that so uh once those last couple of low-hanging fruit get picked off, this is going to be at least 25 possibly more um simply because it's popular it's in eight thousand EDH decks it's extraordinarily distinct um, Yeah. It really isn't anything else like it. Uh, and I don't see wizards in a rush to reprint this, especially in foil. This
0: wasn't even on my radar. I had no idea these were advancing, but I like this. This looks like a total tipping point card. Um, arts fantastic, by the way, that's some of the best art in the entire set.
1: It is pretty cool looking. Yeah, I completely agree.
0: It's like a giant Eldrazi stepping out of an ash cloud on top of a raging volcano.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's
0: Intense. Like it uh,
1: yeah, it was pretty good
0: The thing that's great about this pick as Many of uh, our similar picks Are is that the ramp is so clearly Defined like you can get a copy Today on TCG for 12 bucks but If 10 more people buy copies then You're definitely looking at 20 plus and That says to me that give it a year or two and you're Talking about 30 to 40 because These were mythics and Nobody wanted them <laughs> So mm-hmm. very few people are going to be Sitting on a stash
1: Now's the, now's the strike with the iron's hot. Yep. Strike with the iron's odd. Looks good to me. Oh, that was a good one. Um, all cool right. So
2: <laughs>
0: here's a card that's interesting. Um, this card top aided um, in two different decks in Legacy for the first time today. Um, and I'm talking, of course, of Karn Scion of Urza at GP Birmingham. Um, showed up in a red Uh, A mono-red prison-style deck, as well as an affinity and taxes-style build that they were calling something Steel. They were calling it uh, Steel Stompy, apparently. So, the Steel Stompy build um, had two copies in the sideboard, and the mono-red deck had... One copy, no, two copies in the main. Um, So I picked Karn two weeks ago to go from uh, 35 to 50 plus. That's already come true. Hopefully made some money on that. Um, The supply crunch that we were predicting for Dominaria is in effect, meaning that short term supply was exceeded by demand based on uh, a strong uh, uh, demand profile from standard players getting back into that format. Um, And Karn's uh, ability to get cast profitably in Standard, Modern, and now Legacy, and certainly in EDH, um, and probably in Cube as well, means that these foils are definite targets. The question is, um, should you be buying them right now at, say, 90, which is about what they're at? And they might even go higher today when people hear the news about the Legacy GP. So my argument here would be that you hold off on these for now. For speculative purposes, they're already really, really high for a recently released Foil Mythic. However, I think long-term, this card settles into the power level somewhere between Liliana of the Veil and Liliana of the Last Hope. Last Hope foils are already at 120. Liliana of the Veil foils, um, after being reprinted, um, retraced pretty hard, but were as high as 300 before they saw a reprint. Um, So I think that in early midsummer when the supply catches up and there's tons of dominaria lying around and the summer doldrums set in and people are out enjoying the weather instead of inside playing magic. Um, you probably get a shot at Carnes in the 60 to foil carns in the 60 to $70 range. At which
1: point I start to get more excited. This is uh, i saw you had written this down. I was like, <clears throat> he's not talking about non-foils, is he? Uh, <laughs> <coughs> excuse me. This is, this is pretty wild. Um, but, I, it's hard to see how if the current play pattern continues that $70 isn't uh, a very good buy-in price on these, on the foil copies. Uh, clearly a defining card in Standard, already making pushes into both Modern and Legacy, top eighteen Legacy GPs uh, showing up in Modern as well. It's The card seems like the real deal, and every deck that comes beyond after this is going to ask itself if they want Karn. Um, so, you know, $70 foils of this may sound steep at the moment, but, uh, you know, stuff like Liliana of the veil, vale, $70 foils would have been obviously a great buy. So this might be it. It's might you might be on track with this. And I'm looking at the numbers on TCG right now. And this may, by the time
0: people hear this, this may not even be a valid pick because I'm already seeing this morning. I saw copies at 93. Now they're at 105 plus $5 shipping. So 110. Um, leaning into the supply crunch. These could dry up entirely. There's only like 10 copies listed on all of TCG, which is astonishing for a just printed Mythic. Um, So, the supply really needs to fill in that gap. Um, People need to acquire a bunch of copies, and then he needs to fade from front of mind status for you to get your shot at these. I think that if you definitely want to own a copy there is some chance that it doesn't retrace that it just, people realize it's one of the most powerful planeswalkers of all time. And it holds that for the whole time it's in standard, um, at least on the foil side, but from a speculatory perspective, speculative perspective, uh, I'm willing to just wait and see and revisit in June and see where
1: we're at. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I suppose it's really easy for your picks to look very good if you're recommending we buy them $30 below the current price. <laughs> yeah, well, well, exactly.
0: I mean, I, I think it's important. We, we hardly ever say, keep your eye on this thing right. ahead of time and give people breathing room. Um, and sometimes when I if I wait till the tipping point comes, then by the time people hear it, the rest of the copies are already gone. So... You know, sometimes our advice being doled out before it it is uh, particularly relevant has extra bonus value because you can just put it on a list and check it yourself without having to wait for us to tell
1: you to grab yeah. it. Yeah, and that's that's supposed to kind of be the idea behind my Watchtower articles on MTG price too. But uh, okay, next card is Judge Soul Rings. Uh, there's like virtually no supply left uh, at about one fifty. These are not as cool as the inventions. I will be upfront about that. I don't like them as much and I think that goes for most people. But I mean, it's hard not to notice that there's basically none left on the market and if invention all rings are selling at 350, which they are selling at 350, then it doesn't seem like a stretch that judge rings could be selling selling at 250. So if you're picking them up at 150, that's a pretty good profit. So there's not a lot here in the sense that like you have to figure it out or you know, you wonder if it's good enough. It's like, well, if there's two left on the internet, and you buy one, and then you list it for hundred dollars more, congratulations, you did it. Uh, so, I think these are these are probably pretty likely to make a, a solid move here. Yeah, we were talking about these before the cast. They they, they languished
0: forever, um, not really getting anywhere. The but once the masterpieces started to dry up, I noticed movement um, and. It seems to make sense, right? If if Masterpiece Soul Ring is a four three 400 four hundred dollar card, then the Judge uh, Soul Ring with the original art, um, you know, is it twenty percent worse? Ten percent worse? Do some people think it's twenty five percent better art? Um, you know, make it. You can even if you say that it's never going to be the four hundred dollar price point, it can easily get from say one twenty five to 150, 200 one fifty two hundred two twenty five two fifty. There's just aren't that many lying around, and if twenty or thirty people decide they want them in the next year, then the price goes rockets for mm.
1: Yeah. So it's it's not I don't know. I don't really find it exciting or interesting or clever, but it's just like, yeah, there you go. There's a couple apples left on that tree. Yep. All right. So fully agree with that
0: one. Um, my last one is another Judge Foyle. Um, I think all of these are going to get target, targeted sooner or later, especially the ones that are on the reserve list like this one. Judge Foil Wheel of Fortune is not a card you're ever going to see again. Um, based on current policy, they simply can't print it. So uh, currently you can get copies at a pricey $340, um, which is not uh, a casual buy-in number. But I think that if you were to park the money in there and then wait a year, you're probably looking at a $500 card. Well, it's- Sorry, go ahead keeping in mind that Judge Foyle Gaia's Cradle has gotten up to almost $1,000 and the two cards are basically in the same number of EDH
1: decks. I um, I mean, I own one, so I'd be happy if this hit 500, but I don't know. You think that there's that Judge Foyle Wheel of Fortunes are going to be $500? I guess like 350 for this card seems so insane to me j- already, just in the sense that <laughs> I, it doesn't seem that... I mean, I know it's in 10,000 EDH decks, but like... I wonder if it's supposed to be in those, if it's actually that good. And if it's going to keep getting added to decks, I don't know. But it's, it's that good in Nekasar for sure. It's like, first yeah, card you add. in Nekasar, which is one deck, I guess. I'm not saying you're wrong. I guess I'm trying to, I'm, I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate that I look at this and I'm like, you know, Gaia's Cradle is, is essentially the pinnacle EDH card. It's useful in competitive formats uh, and it's unparalleled. And with Wheel of Fortune, you're like, yeah, it's a good effect. It's not played in Legacy at all. Uh, you know, no one really uses it in Vintage. Obviously, not legal anywhere else. Um, you know, it's fine in EDH, but there's a couple of effects that are kind of similar. But at the flip side, I mean, yeah, it's a Judge Promo reserve list card, so you're not seeing any more of them. So if everything else can spike that hard, I guess there's no reason this can't too, I suppose. I mean, do you feel do you feel any differently about it if I remind you that uh, FTV foil mocks Diamond? is currently more expensive than this card uh, that's pretty nuts but at least somebody's playing that card I guess I don't know I don't know
0: so, so i, I did, this is definitely a tipping point there there are a handful of copies available online in the u s um and as soon as you hoover up the first few you're looking at four hundred plus already there's a there's two copies listed on tcG one at the at the price I'm saying get in at the next one is another $80 dollars more. So I mean I, I, I think people given how reserveless stuff has been targeted, this has already been under pressure because you can see that the market price was 300 up until just recently. so it's already been on the move. This is just you know if you ever wanted to own a copy, um, this is your probably your last call and as a spec sky's the limit what in in the range between like 200 and 600 it's like price theory just is very nebulous right it, they're all expensive and as long as you can buy list them for a price anywhere near what you're paying there's no reason to be scared of holding it
1: uh yeah i'm not i guess i'm i can't make the point that this won't won't hit that price point I suppose. Like I I don't want maybe I'm more just like annoyed that it it will be that price and not less so concerned that it won't.
0: <laughs> Let me see. I I'm going to guess off the top of my head that Card Kingdom's buy list is 180 on this card. Let me check. Nope. 273 in foil. <laughs> Jeez. So your backstop is at 280. There's no risk here.
1: If you can get one of these in under 350, I think it's a slam dunk. Yeah, I I I can't, you know, especially with buy list that high. I can't say that you're wrong, yep. for sure. All
0: right, so that was a good swath of picks. Let's plow through a whole bunch of uh, event listings. So we've got Eternal Weekend's Legacy Event. Uh, this was.
1: Last weekend, yeah. It looks like two players.
0: Yeah. And top eight was nothing too, too exciting. Dark Depths, Death and Taxi. Sorry, Death and Taxi. Death and Taxes. Dragon Stompy in in third was probably the mo- most interesting. Um, this actually looks a heck of a lot like the Karn deck from today, but it had no Karns. So it's essentially the same deck that is top eight today in Birmingham. Um, I probably
1: didn't have any copies.
0: Yeah, or didn't realize that's what he was supposed to be doing. Um, Grixis Delver, Dredge, Grixis Delver, Jeskai and Miracles. You know, regular Legacy Tournament. Um, The Baltimore Modern Classic. um, Humans, Affinity, Valakut, Urza,tron Affinity, Hollow One, Valakut, Humans. So quite a lot of Valakut in that list. Um, I didn't notice anything in these decks that was out of the ordinary. These all looked pretty much like the expected configurations. Humans seems to have been pretty locked in, especially
1: for a deck um, that has so many options. Yeah, I've been expecting to see the human list evolve a little bit, but they really have not flinched from those creatures. Uh, I guess that's I guess that's what the build wants for the time being.
0: A lot of the flexibility is in the sideboard, right? Because they have hardly like almost no spells in the sideboard. Typically, they run like two dismember, and I think that's it. Everything else is like. Toolbox humans that they can bring in against various uh, matchups. Mm-hmm. So we also had a modern mox that went down. Uh, the modern mox was humans, humans, blue moon, bloomless Titan, junk, Urzotron, Mardu, Pyromancer, and death shadow. Um, death shadow being a Grixis list. Um, these humans lists look pretty much the same as well. Um, blue moon deck that pops up here and there. This mm-hmm. was a... Uh, a top eight for Jason Mindsculptor,
1: which are few and far between these days. Really shocking, I think, is the word to describe this, but we'll see. Uh, I still don't think that he's gone from the format. I think uh, it's just a matter of time for jace but we'll see the bloom of science keep popping up uh and i'm pretty sure daryl Ayers is a common pilot of it as well but they uh it seems it's it keeps doing very well um and i keep wanting to find a card in here to be able to talk about and i don't know which one it's supposed to be uh i want to say it's amulet of vigor but that card's already like 20 dollars. i mean i don't know maybe amulet of vigor is going to end up 40 bucks i'm not sure but it does seem like uh this deck is kind of People are sleeping on it a little bit.
0: I think walking Ballista foils are pretty high right now because of play in all formats. When they rotate, maybe there's an opportunity to get those foils a little cheaper. They're going to be pretty great long term. It probably gets another two or three years before it ever sees a Master Set reprint.
1: Yeah, that's such a ways away though, I think, right?
0: Yeah, and I really don't see Ballista... Coming back in a standard, I think they, I think, <laughs> I think they know Ballista's is too good for standard now. Yeah. So that's that's tough to tough to make a move on. Yeah, pumpable colorless damage is is good. Who who knew? Yeah. Um. So the Birmingham Legacy event, we were talking about Karn showing up there, and last I checked, we were recording actually while they were in top eight, and both of the Karn decks had made it to the semifinals. Oh. Um, so I don't know how that's going to play out, but Karn may actually win a legacy GP today. By the time you guys hear this, you may already know all about it. That'd
1: be pretty wild.
0: Uh, and if that goes down and enough hype gets built around it, then (laughs) you're going to, you might be
1: waiting a long time for those $70 foil (laughs) cards. Right. Um, I'm also seeing, uh, right away, I see true name nemesis in here. Uh, and I know that there was a lot of activity around that card once the, uh, (coughs) Excuse me, once the Commander list, uh, Anthology list got released earlier this week, um, people went, True Name Nemesis is not in it and people went after it.
0: Yeah, I went after some Japanese uh, Atraxas as well because, um, you know, if if Atraxa is getting reprinted in the Anthology series, which is only in English, that means you'll never see a a foil Japanese Atraxa again. And that's the only foreign language
1: Atraxa that
2: matters. Mm
0: -hmm. And it's still one of the
1: top five commanders of all time. So, card is pretty popular. Uh, I know people have been asking, kind of hoping that Deathrite gets the axe before the Pro Tour, um, because there's Legacy involved. Uh, right? For is it Dominaria that has it, or is it the core set? But but isn't the Pro Tour a team? A team? Yeah, tournament? but it's got
0: Legacy in it. I just get if it was legacy only I could see that happening. I'd be
1: very surprised to see them do it when it's only a third of the coverage. Yeah, I mean maybe like you're it's it's not going to dominate the story or that you know the narratives because of that, but at the same time it's not going to be a a good experience for the competitors.
0: I mean no one's on the side of Death Shaman not being bannable. <laughs> Everybody knows it's too powerful. Um so they could, they could go that direction, and how much that shakes up legacy, I'm not sure. I mean, the thing is that the, uh, the legacy decks. I, I don't know how much the shape of a lot of the decks is responsive to meta as opposed to hyper optimized and linear. Like how, like how does elves change if they get rid of death deathrite shaman? How does the mono red prison deck change? Um, I, I I'm not enough of a leg legacy expert to be able to see that future yet i'm curious to see what happens but i also don't trust legacy to really move the needle on cards unless it activates something brand new
1: yeah i mean i agree with you that neither of us i think know enough about legacy to be able to confidently speak to how the metagame would shift if you threw Right shaman out whether there's some deck waiting in the wings ready to pounce, you might see a blip on legacy uh on dredge cards which is probably basically evacuated the format uh with death right ubiquity um then you know it's it's the type of thing where uh I guess some cards could see a pretty good movement but nothing new um and it'd be more on like expectation than actual real demand mm-hmm.
0: all right, so moving on to our monster fourth segment,
1: yeah. Okay. And now we're on to segment four. Uh, We have a special guest this week. We have uh, Jesse Mason from Killing a Goldfish. Uh, You'll know the blog, blog blog.killgold.fish and also on Twitter at killgoldfish. How's it going, Jesse? It's going very well. How's it going? Great. Thanks for coming on. We also have uh, James, of course, still hanging around with us for this one. And now Jesse and James, it's time to blast off. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> is, yeah, that I, is that what you're trying to set up here that- I didn't
1: <laughs> think okay. about it until I said your name out loud and I'm like oh my god that's the thing from Pokemon right
2: <laughs> yeah well, my, my other uh, my podcast um, about great designer search is also with a James and I didn't realize what we were doing with the, that name until <laughs> uh, we had already recorded two episodes
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it just came to me um, I wish I had thought of it earlier I could have come up with a better, better joke uh, so Jesse, you uh, I'm just going to give our listeners a little bit of background. You posted this blog post uh, about two-ish, two to three weeks ago now called Magic Capitalism. Uh, and you kind of had this framework of an idea. And it, it struck a chord with me. I thought it was real a really novel perspective um, and something at the very least that I thought was worth uh, a lot of our listeners hearing. Um, so can you give us a quick rundown
2: sort of what the concept or concepts in this post was? Sure. So magical capitalism is this idea of the economic system behind magic, that it's this specific implementation of capitalism, that it's both within a capitalist framework, because I think everyone listening to this, you know, or 99.9% of us is living in a capitalist society, but that this uh, game that we play, how we trade cards and, you know, mostly buy and sell cards from one another is this very specific and strange implementation of capitalism where we all kind of try to make money off of one another. And it's not just a version of capitalism. I think of it as kind of the most capitalist uh, implementation as as far as games in that everything about the game is really affected by buying and selling and trying to make money. And especially uh, in Magic, it's kind of this laissez-faire Uh, approach to it because you know there's no regulatory body making sure that no one's manipulating the the price of of uh meditate or whatever okay so i what what i what struck me when i
1: read this was that i i I immediately saw where you were going with this and i thought it was was uh, a good perspective because the the way it's handled versus other video games and so like i will use an example uh for myself, is uh, PUBG, right? I've, I've been playing a lot that a lot lately. I really enjoy the game. I thought if you or anyone else wants to play P- Unknowns Battlegrounds, PUBG, there's a company that makes that product. You go to the market, you go to Steam, and you pay them for that game. Uh, and once you bought that game, you're in. You can now play PUBG. Uh, you, and you don't have to go through a process of trying to continually engage with the... Continually... Produce capital to play the game, and you don't have to like engage in a capital sy- capitalist system in order to play PUBG beyond the initial purchase, right? Like, where yeah. is Magic is like a a microcosm of the American economy of capitalism. It's like you have capitalism which produces this game, Magic the Gathering, but then in order to play Magic the Other, and you enter in like a sub level. It's like Shahrazad. Right, like there's a sub-game of capitalism yeah. that you play, except it's even like it's a little, it's twisted a little bit because, as you said, it's it's laissez fair. There is no, there's no F, uh, FCC um, and no oversight. There's no Fed. Uh, if I want to buy every single copy of um, a card, I can attempt to do that, and no one's going to yell at me. There's no price gouging or anything.
2: Well, right. Well, there there is price gouging. It's just you know not. Regulated, uh, and yeah, that's, the, what it, no yeah, yeah. that's what I meant. There's no regulation against that. That's what I meant. The PUBG analogy, I would say it would be like magic if you could pay, you know, a hundred dollars to get access to the game, but you only had pistols. And if you wanted to have access to, you know, like uh, a truck that you could drive around the game, well, that was a thousand dollars. And if you want to be able to pick up the sniper rifle that drops, well, that's three thousand dollars. And yeah, it's it's very strange. And I, one of the reasons I wrote it is that. I feel like we're just used to it at this point. Like we're kind of in the middle of this system that's really strange from the outside, but we're just, we, we surround ourselves with other people that are used to it. So it's never questioned as something that's actually very different from every other game and from what other people are doing. Um, I don't know if this experience is similar for you, but whenever I mention to people like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really into magic, they're... F- first questions are almost always about like the prices of the game, you know, like, uh, Oh, I do you have any really expensive cards or like, what's your most valuable one? Or isn't that really expensive? And I have to explain like, n- no, I don't, I don't really have anything that expensive, but I, I used to work making money off of the game or, you know, like, Oh, that's not really what I focus on or, Oh yeah, it is really expensive. And, you know, for, For a long time, I kind of gave people explanations of like, well, you know, it's not really that expensive if you do X, Y and Z. But now it's just like, yeah, yeah, it is. I I, kind of came around to to admitting that. Well, I, so I'll head you off. Oh, well, there's, there's that excitable dog. I mentioned, I'll head
1: you off at the pass and say, I absolutely don't tell people that I play magic, but <laughs> be beside for aside from that. Uh, also, when, I, when I do get cornered into telling people that they always ask if it's uh, you know, is it that Pokemon game? Or I think I've heard of that, but I, but I, <laughs> I, I do know what you mean. Because in fact, when I, when I, do end up talking about this. I'm like, yeah, I do a lot of work with magic. I kind of like run something of a small business out of my house. And they're like, well, I don't understand. And I'm like, well, they have value. And I end up saying it's basically like the stock market. I'm like, I essentially do the stock right. market with magic cards, which is which is what I find to be the easiest tool to explain it. Um, which you know, so I'm, I it sounds like generally I'm talking to people less familiar with it than you are, but it's still a
2: similar conversation. Yeah. With- well, Seattle is different. Uh, I, I'd sure. say that basically everyone around my age in Seattle is about two degrees removed from someone that's really, really into magic. And in fact, that's why I moved to Seattle is because I knew so many people here that play magic. Hmm. Interesting. Um,
1: so I, one of the, one of the pieces that I took from this that I kind of struck me, I was like, this is a good way of framing. This is you talked about how we're just very used to what magic, how, the way that you access magic. Wizards prints packs full of randomized cards, semi-randomized cards. You, people buy those that creates uh, a market of singles and inventory of singles. And then people buy and trade and sell those singles. And that's how we've always accessed magic. But you, and I feel like you kind of touched on it, but you didn't get too far into it. But I was like, I mean, I guess there, that there really is only one way to do this, and that is the micro, that creates the microcosm of capitalism. But another way to do this would be more like if wizards treated it like a video game. Uh, um, yeah. something, something like, wow, where there's a monthly subscription fee, but the content isn't gated behind more money. Uh, so, and you could replicate that in magic by wizard saying, okay, we've produced a new set. It's, Dominaria is now on the shelves and for, uh, I don't know, I'm going to, I'm going to make up numbers, right? But for 50 bucks, you can have a one single copy of every card in Dominaria and for $180, you can have four of every card in Dominaria and that's it. Right. They just come as like sealed packages of the net number of cards. And then you don't there's no random aspect that develops the market because you can just take everything, all the content right at once delivered right to you. And you don't have to like game the system trying to produce more of it for yourself.
2: Yeah, that's something I've given a lot of thought to. And in fact, that used to be Um, a large part of this piece was thinking about this like alternate history. If you know what, what if that had happened if the living card game had been invented back then. And basically when I've discussed this, you know, with wizards employees or, or other people, the explanation is basically, well, magic wouldn't have been as successful basically because wizards wouldn't have been able to, to make enough money out of it, or uh, they wouldn't have made as much money of it. Uh, you know, they wouldn't have had as much incentive to continue, which First of all, I think that's a little weird. Like, there are a lot of very successful video games, you know, that make a lot of money that you only buy once or whatever. Like, the, uh, off the top of my head, you know, the, the Grand Theft Auto series, but before they did the microtransactions or whatever. The, didn't those games, you know, break records in terms of the amount of money that they cost to produce? And there are all these, like, single player games that cost as much or more than blockbuster movies or, Think of the the Final Fantasy series throughout history that has always broken records in terms of sales and in terms of length of development. So I think it's really strange this idea that oh, Magic has to survive by selling packs in randomized fashion to maximize value out of players because otherwise you wouldn't be making enough money. But you're still just printing stuff on cardboard, and it is like it is a cost to develop. Um, game mechanics and print it, but it's definitely not as much as, you know, 3D modeling and hiring thousands of animators or whatever. So I, I definitely think that magic could survive on, on that model. But the, the other thing that I'm think that I was thinking about as I was writing this is magic players, they always see themselves as aligned with wizards that because we play magic, because we enjoy the card game magic, the gathering, therefore, we always want what is best for Wizards of the Coast, a subsidiary of Hasbro, which is just really strange. It People seem to be arguing against their own self-interest in that they want Magic to be more expensive so that more of their money goes toward it, so that they don't get to play other games, so that not as many people get to play it. And I, I, I just I don't know what to make of that, you know? Like, why are Magic players so into the idea of being aligned with this company that honestly doesn't really care about them that much.
0: I mean, I would, I would argue that the average player is not aligned um, with wizards views and that it's the voices of people like us and, and people from other, like other vocal content creators who um, consider themselves to be, you know, richly steeped in the, Um, pragmatic and economic aspects of the game that make those arguments. I think that if you talk to the average player and, you know, I say this because not only do I have, I been in the game for all 25 of the years, but I've spoken to thousands and thousands of players and I get harassed by some on a weekly basis for my activities in MTG finance and almost without fail, they, they espouse opinions that seem to completely disregard, um, any desire to ensure Wizards makes money, um, so I'm not sure that I, I don't think the average player is aligned. Well, it, um, it's not;
2: it's definitely not everyone. You're you're right, but it seems more there are more people that would that would argue that than um, in in other fields. I, I would say it's it's always struck me as
1: there's essentially two layers. You have the what I'll call the Reddit layer. Uh, who, oh God, Reddit. And, and not just not just people that frequent that website, but like basically everyone who it, it sort of feels like it's everyone who isn't a content creator um, typically tends to be on a screw Watsi, give me cards line. Uh, and a lot of the content creators, James and I, um, you know, Seth, Corbin, Jason, all these guys who are kind of in this sort of, you know, we're not we're not wizards and we don't work for wizards, but we I guess are more involved sort of than like most players who try and are a little bit more broad scope, sort of appreciate the business aspect of it a little more kind of look at it and go, well, this may not feel good for you as a player, but it, cr- it's part of this larger economic model that's in place because this is why wizards does it for a reason. Right. And like, I know that James and I have in the past said like, well, this decision may not sound great for the player. it is, it makes Hasbro more money. It makes Wizards of the Coast more money. It makes the game more stable, which means that the game continues to get made. So it's sort of this trickle down effect uh, of it actually being better for you, even if it doesn't feel like that in the moment.
0: Well, so, well and I go, go ahead. I mean, one of the things I think is important to um, set up is a framework by which we are attempting to analyze um, whether the model makes sense. Because you know, I've been the first to say on previous podcasts that there is absolutely a subscription model that could be adopted. Now, what the price point on that is, and whether it would actually save players any money in the end, is another question. But you can certainly get rid of rarity in Magic. There's no, as you said, they're printing to cardboard. The rarity is subject is you know elective, not. Uh, systemic it's not required as a foundational element of the play of the game because when you're playing the game rarity doesn't even come into uh, you know no no magic rule that matters i mean i'm probably i give it a qualifier cuz i probably nonsense. missing one <laughs> but nothing nothing that tends to come up in the average game of magic even refers to rarity yeah so so it is Elective. Well, I think at um, this
2: point, the reason that it could never change to a different economic model is because of this economic model that they've already created. And what's so powerful about magical capitalism is that it's created this infrastructure that um, basically, you know, I, I make money off of magic, too. So in a way, I'm, I'm connected to it, uh, that there are all these card shops and um, in between dealers and tournament organizers and all of those people desperately don't want the economic system to change because it's been something that's made them money and what it does is when a new set comes out Wizards doesn't even actually have to promote it anymore like they they do you know have a marketing budget but the the local game stores and all the other in between people they're the ones that really want to promote it that heavily and So that's something that's so powerful. A set comes out and there are thousands of people constantly bombarding you with ads about, you know, buy cards from this. This one is going to be in this next hot deck. You should go here and buy boxes from us. And it's because of this economic model that they made. So that's one of the things that makes it self-sustaining is that once you have this economic model that benefits a bunch of middlemen that are um, neither... Actually, creating the cards, nor the ones that are consuming them. Once you have that, you know they they don't want to leave that because it's it's making them money. So it's it's almost certainly never going to change unless Magic starts dying.
0: Sure, but th- th- there's a very good reason that we have middlemen in Magic. I mean, I, the the reason that we have retailers is because people want to go try on jeans before they buy them. Otherwise, we just get them direct online from Levi. the The reason that we have um, middlemen and magic is because they recognized early on that they were going to need a network of stores to set up communities, and it's you can easily see if you subtract the LGSs from the history of the game that the game would have collapsed quite some time ago. I mean, it, it was the bit the availability, especially in North America, of of relatively low rent play spaces where people that were interested could gather and start playing Type One, Type Two, and and you know discovering the formats like Draft and Sealed and the rollout of pre-releases at some portion, at uh, some point along the way that allowed oh, yeah. the game to get definitely, so big. Definitely. And I think that one of the, one of the things, one of the, the parts of the framework that I think is important to include in this kind of analysis is, you know, it, acknowledging the success of the game. It's, it's very difficult to criticize um, and suggest that we should be doing something other than we are when oh, the game I'm, has survived 25 years without very, any major catastrophe. I mean, e- even even when we're talking... Of, people like to talk about Chronicles like they were there. <laughs> and, you know, I was in first or second year university that summer buying Ice Age, buying Chronicles. And when they talk about it collapsing the game, like... There are as much fur as Wizards was even capable of interpreting, given the complete lack of internet and social media at that point. Um, they get that much harassment from players like on a daily yeah. basis these days. So, and and that was about as close as they ever came, right? Every, there is a low point somewhere around Lorwin where the game isn't selling all that well. And then there's where they're retracing back through sales figures
2: from earlier years yeah. and so- then they recover again um so I, i'd say brief side point the the points where it could have collapsed chronicles was one of them um homelands or uh there, there's a, a part around there where they went like nine or ten months without releasing a set and then um mercadian masks urza saga like if invasion hadn't been good it could have collapsed there but i, I want to say um you're none of none of the, the analysis that you just did do i disagree with it like absolutely you're you're right 100 right that the the game's success is in large part due to these the organization of uh, local game stores because they had so much incentive to um, to promote it. Uh, I, f- I forget if it was Brian David Marshall or somewhere else, someone else that was saying that there were so many comic stores that would have gone out of business during the '90s if it wasn't for Magic: The Gathering because of that's a very beating yeah thing because to say. he was he was running a, a comic store. Uh, and working in comics, then, right? Yeah, I think it was higher
1: grounds, right? He was, new- yeah, I he think, was- he was- yeah, he was yeah, yeah, writing right. for Marvel
2: too. I think. Um, <clears throat> so it's, I, I don't disagree with that analysis at all. It's just um, we, what I'm trying to do is just lay out this framework um, so that we're not analyzing magic independent of everything else. That we're connecting it to the the larger societal structure of um, the capitalist framework and seeing how. Magic both copies from that and uh, differs from it in, in different reasons. The only disagreement that I have a little bit is that there are definitely like retail models that are successful that aren't necessarily this. Like video game stores sell video games and, you know, when they sell a copy at MSRP, they're still making money. They don't have to sell, you know, parts of the game for, for hundreds of dollars to make money which is that's that's absolutely true
1: and i can already hear james from over here that the the difference there is that uh if i go buy a copy of grand theft auto i go home and play alone and i don't need a space to engage with it whereas if i buy magic cards i have to have another person involved at least one and ideally a community so it's it would be much harder at the start, not necessarily today, but at the start to build those circles of players which are required in order to play the game uh, without having the store community, right? Like, so I, I can see that being a difference. Well, I, mean,
0: I also think we're missing the mark because I think we're comparing apples yes. to oranges to, to use video well, games. And, and, there, and there, was also, there was also a theme in the article about yeah. um, works of art. And while and while a major element of magic is certainly um, artistic, and not not just one aspect, there are multiple. There, you know, the art um, of the design of the physical product of the game, of the marketing and packaging of the game, uh, the artworks which are commissioned for use in the game, the design of the um, the mechanics of the cards so the design dev and now we have the play design team that actually manicures the meta of the game and all of these are uh, at least in part in artistic endeavors and yet they are they are not sold as art through a gallery they are sold as entertainment product by a toy and retailing company
2: well, I, I don't mean art in terms of gallery. I mean art in terms of, you know, a, a movie is art, a book is art, uh, um, an album is art, and those are all sold in in mainstream places, right? Right next to Magic the Gathering. So these are all art forms, and I think that games have a lot in common with with different art forms. You know, whether it's made by some big company, whether it's made by you know some small indie company, or even just one guy. I, I think that you can see commonalities between like selling a movie, selling music. Selling a book, selling a game.
0: Sure, I mean, and and that I agree with you certainly that they are all artistic product, um, that they are the the pro the they are produced by artists, and that they, um, but then in most of the examples you just gave, they are also produced for profit. Sure, yeah, um, and that there and that there has been always been dynamic tension between <laughs> the interests of the artist in terms of how how when. Um, And under which circumstances they would like to present their art um, and their desire to get to market and to have the greatest number of people enjoy their art and the desires and um, self-interest of the middlemen, as you would put it, that have intervened. So I think like a great example is there was a really good um, Joe Rogan um, Smashing Pumpkins interview a while back where...
2: um, Uh, Can we pause for a minute?
1: Joe Rogan has not done anything excellent. Ever, but sorry to interrupt. Go ahead.
2: Wait.
1: It's a it's a good it's a good interview. Joe the, is? Is he the radio guy? The MMA he's the MMA host. He's MMA show. radio. He's all over the
0: place. Fear Factor. blah, oh, blah, that blah. Guy.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. But now continue.
0: But but what makes this interview um, worth a listen is that it is you know a guy who was at the center point of the music industry in the '90s talking about how that their entire industry was set up to basically squash artistic endeavor um, that in the slightest bit stepped out of line with their marketing objectives. So if you wanted to do something that was slightly outside of the demographics they'd already assigned you to, how difficult it was to pull them on side, how um, willing they were to pump you up and then dump you at the slightest provocation if the numbers didn't look right.
1: This is all why Kurt Cobain killed himself too, right? Like which who <laughs> was Nirvana, which
2: was the nineties. Like that's what it was. Oh, you mean why he was murdered?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow. We've all got our tin tinfoil hats on today. So I guess, I guess what I'm, I'm pulling around to is that um, magic as uh, a game product, um, which incorporates artistic elements is judged by the market based on its relative utility in a scenario where it is being compared to dozens if not hundreds if not thousands of alternative options and they exist across all of those spheres because the commonality is that they are all artistic product for the purposes of entertainment and consumption and so Magic doesn't just compete against other trading card games. It competes against video games. It competes against sports. It competes against um, buying music and and so on and so forth. And the list goes on and on. And so I think that it's it's, uh, important to, in addition, to add to the framework of analysis that um, Magic outshines many of these additional options that have cropped up, that have both borrowed mechanics from the game um or attempted to improve upon the game, or have removed the economic meta entirely. So like a while back on the cast, I talked about the the card game Epic, which is basically a straightforward ripoff of Magic the Gathering, except that it removes the economy completely. And is that
2: the one that they sued or is that a different game?
0: No, that was Hex TCG. Oh Hex, right? Um, right that was right. the Kickstarter that Jeff Hoogland was promoting pretty heavily for a while. Um So Epic is actually a physical card game. You you buy it in packs, but you it it is essentially the model we we all referred to earlier, where every so often they make a set. The set has a certain number of cards. I think you can get the whole set for about $20 because it's just a few, a handful of a double handful of booster packs that um, have predetermined cards in them. That gives you everything you need. And then you can draft with that, you can play constructed with that. And the, the key differentiator in the mechanics is that there are no lands and there are no casting costs other than zero and one. And on your turn, you can play as many zeros as you want, but you can only play one card that costs one. Um, the game is very fast paced. It has many of the a, a, anybody who loves magic will enjoy epic. And yet that game is not really going anywhere or doing very well. <laughs> well <laughs> and, I so- sus- and I suspect will not survive.
2: Uh, One of the reasons that I think that it's hard to compete with magic is because of magic's economic system. So basically assume that you are a magic player, you have one or two or $10,000 worth of magic cards, you have this deck that you've perfected and beyond economics, you have, you know, years and years of experience playing magic. Um, But because you have that huge sunk cost, you're going to be pretty hesitant to switch to anything else because... Like if you, if you have a deck that you've spent that much money on, like you're not just going to abandon that for something else. And so it's, I, the only disagreement that I have with you is I don't think it says that magic is better because it succeeded in the face of all these challengers, though it definitely is better than a lot of them. It's that magic because it was there first and because it has this innate advantage based on people's sunken costs into it, you you can't knock something, you can't knock magic off of that pedestal because magic players are so distinctly magic players and they're going to be magic players until their cards aren't worth anything.
1: I, I, I want to hop in and comment here too that I think the comparison to Epic is a tad disingenuous for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that Again, magic is extremely well established at this point. So it requires a major undertaking to try and compete with them from a name brand marketing, uh, mental real estate perspective. Um, You know, who have we seen do that? Uh, Hearthstone. <clears throat> right. Like Blizzard has taken them on essentially online and basically won uh, where they are essentially a, where Wizards is already playing as a handicapped version of themselves. But nobody else has come even close. But and when you talk about Eternal th- kind of failing to overcome magic, uh, epic, yeah, uh, sure, whatever, epic. Um, it's I, I guess it's, it feels like you're taking away a little bit of you're you're, you're not giving magic credit for what it is. Uh, and I don't mean that, and I mean, like, the game itself is, I think most of us will agree, basically, the best game ever made, or, like, very close to it. I mean, it is.
2: And an I mean, I'm a fan of Gone Home, but Magic's pretty good, too. Wait, I'm sorry, wait, say it again? You're, I'm a fan of Gone Home, but Magic's pretty good, too.
1: Okay, yeah, sorry. So, like, Magic is is one of the best-made games ever. Uh, so, you're like, oh, yeah, well, Epic couldn't beat Magic using this other model. It's like, well, is Epic... Considered one of the best games ever made because, like they're 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 just they're starting from so far behind, it doesn't feel like that's necessarily a fair comparison. Well, so I mean, let me clarify. Um,
0: I'm taking into account the um, pole position that Magic already occupies when I, on the whole, state that the utility of Magic, its economics notwithstanding. Must be sufficient to overcome the any um, elements of the game that players aren't happy with, because it's still on top, even though they have many, many, many other options. So, if if there was, for instance, one of the you know one of the common themes we've seen from many content creators is magic is too expensive. No evidence is ever given to back this up. It's just a statement often coming from personal experience. People saying, you know, my budget for the game is this. I love this format. I want to play this deck, and that deck is out of my budget range, and so the game is too expensive. They will then commiserate with other players who are in the same boat and come up with this is a universal problem. The problem with that is that if it was really a universal problem, it would already have changed. The way that the, the market dynamics function... If Wizards was so far off in their demographic targeting that the game could was not optimizing revenue, um, which is to say that in the intersection of the supply and demand curves, you could reduce the cost of the game by, say, half and not just double players because that would give a neutral swap change in revenue, but say quadruple players. So you would have half the spend per player, but four times as many people playing. They would have, or, or have already done that. I mean well, that's that's what Hasbro's analytics team does for a living Assuming you figure out right. how. To, okay, sure, I'm, and and they're I, and trust me, I have my doubts about Hasbro overall, but they are, but there is no toy company that does better anywhere on the planet. Mattel and Hasbro are the number one, number two, and no one else knows the market any better than than they do. So the rest of it, any of any of us throwing. You know, stuff at the wall and hoping it will stick is, is so nothing I'm, but a conjecture.
2: I, okay, Th- this is actually where you said something that uh, wow, I didn't agree with any of that. So, first of all, the like that magic is not affordable without any evidence. I don't, I don't know what evidence you would need to see that magic is is unaffordable. Like, how much does a legacy got co- debt cost? It's absolutely absurd. Yeah, but like, what what know. more evidence? Right, you but they need? don't want
0: us playing legacy. That's by desi- That's because that's by design. They don't want us playing Legacy because Legacy doesn't optimize the economics okay, of the game. Uh, I, I need to. They,
1: okay, they so, want us. So playing, I, I, I'm, I'm going to hop in here. I'm going to hop in here for a moment. Wait, let me hop in for just a moment. I know where Jesse's going to go with this. He's going to say Legacy is way too expensive because it costs as much as a car. And James is going to say that's on purpose because Wizards doesn't want us to play Legacy. They want us to get out of Legacy because Wizards doesn't make any money on it think you're both basically correct i just want to shift it and i you'd be better off to probably talking about standard decks like right now i just saw somebody complaining on twitter today that his standard deck is worth five hundred dollars um and wizards does we, we, want us to play standard they don't want us to play legacy they want us to play sure standard. so that's probably so a better place to focus I, you can go
0: up to the ten thousand foot view it doesn't even matter what format we're talking about all that matters is if wizards perceived that they could sell more product to if they could get X number of additional players to offset the reduction in the ARPU, the average revenue per user, per player. They would do it. They want to maximize revenues. Their, their goal is to maximize revenue as, as has been outlined in the article that we're discussing. Wizards is a publicly traded company with a pure profit motive. They are not our friends. They are, they are in pursuit of profit. So how do we explain then? If, if the low-hanging fruit is right there where they can cut the cost of a deck from, say, let's say we're referring to standard 500 to 250, and that's going to quadruple the number of players, why so don't they I'm,
2: do it? I'm not arguing that they would make more money by cutting the cost of Magic. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I, I think that they are optimizing the amount of money that they're making for Magic. What I'm saying is that in this framework, it is hurting players and it's keeping people from playing like yes you're, you're absolutely right then from a business point of view they're doing the right thing but it's not it's not good for us it's not good for the art of magic it's not good for the diversity of people that can play it it's not good for our ability to play other games because we spend all our money on magic it's the only people that it's good for are wizards and the intermediaries that also make money off magic like that's part of the analysis is that yes this is good for them
1: what what i see here sorry, oh, sorry let me try let me jump in here james what i see here is a uh a different level of appreciation on each side here is we have jesse looking at this and going um it's hurting players because the game is too expensive whatever too expensive means uh, and it, that sort of grows into a larger complaint. With uh, I, in Jesse saying, I understand that wizards is maximizing their profit, but that still sucks because. And we move up the the scale here. Not only is magic in uh, magic a microcosm of capitalism, wizards engages in the macro version of capitalism, which is also bad for us. Like like Jesse's working towards this greater idea that that. Wizards being part of this capital, it, it, it's a painting a larger picture that capitalism just kind of sucks for us in general. Whereas James seems to be working from the perspective that capitalism exists, it's what we have, uh and is accepting that so james's ultimate goal at least like what he believes wizard's ultimate goal should be is maximizing the rpu and if they're doing that then that's correct and there isn't a complaint at that point like if wizards is is pulling that off they're hitting their target and we don't have a complaint about that where jesse's like no that sucks because that's capitalism and then they shouldn't be trying to drag every penny out of us and, and so my pres- could be pres- wrong.
0: position is, my position is coming. It's not, no, that was fairly accurate. I mean, my position is coming from the perspective of what I would refer to as pragmatic socialism. I mean, I'm a Canadian. I, I vote far left of what you guys would call the Democrats. Um, the, but I, I strongly believe that there is a difference between the role of society and the state to interfere with the prices of products that are essential like water and air and the environment and basic food and electricity, clothing, access to housing, et cetera. And what I consider to be luxury products, i.e. I, the way that we choose to spend our disposable income, um, I believe has almost no reason to be regulated. And I think that magic in particular is fairly unique because if you want to use the, uh, ex- the luxury car analogy that was referred to in the article, you have, um, you know, a wide variety of price points on cars, you can buy a used car for a few thousand dollars, you can buy a Lamborghini for several hundred thousand dollars. Um, They both get you from point A to point B. And so you are making a judgment about the relative utility of the more expensive version of the object. And part of that might be because you are so enamored um, with that uh, artistic product, or the performance of the object. That you are willing to pay much, much more for each additional unit of utility, and that is the you know the classical description of a you know supply and demand curves and how you know some goods actually um, have no upper bound on their value if they are of the considered to be of the highest quality. And I consider luxury to be, I mean, magic to be a luxury entertainment oh, product. Its arpu has never been let. It has ne- It's ARPU has never been less than $1,000, and it happens to be the kind of game that if there is a specific economic barrier, you are a 12-year-old with no money, and you want to play the legacy, let's say, and you want to play Lands, which now costs six to $8,000 or whatever, you can just print the cards off a printer and play the game. Because the IP is not actually locked up in the way that access to a Lamborghini is. It is extremely easy to break through whatever economic barriers have been set up ahead of you and so play the game with your friends.
2: I think that you're there's a lot more people other than just 12 year olds on their allowance that like maybe could play Magic that don't. For example, people that like just any group of people that likes games but can't afford that. Uh, for example, League of Legends, which I've been playing a lot, is huge all across the world. Like there's servers, you know, in uh, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, uh, the Chinese um, region is by far the biggest for it because it requires little money or a lot of people play completely for free for it. So the it's not just that, oh, I'm a magic player. Oh, no, I can't afford lands. It's that you never even encounter magic. You are never taught magic. You never go to a store because you don't know anyone that plays magic because they don't have The economic um, benefit of of being able to, so it's 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 bigger than just oh the game should be you know a deck should be two hundred dollars instead of ten thousand dollars. It's I'm I, I guess what I'm trying to get at. First of all, I'm not like advocating any specific change in this article that I've made, and in fact, that's something that. A lot of people have criticized it for is that it doesn't have any solutions and, and it doesn't. I don't I don't advocate anything. It's just that I wanted to point out that this is the system that we've set up and that the things that the system does is keep a lot of people from from playing magic.
1: I, I, I'm going to chime in here because one of the things that I took away from this and that I, I tried to introduce to some other people um, in my private circle and I got pushback on. Uh, so part of the reason I want to talk about this because it seemed like it was really worth clarifying is that it stands the 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 fact that Magic is this microcosm of capitalism gets in the way of an improvement or or access of the game itself in a way that we don't see with other products because they don't have this market and so this isn't about trying to draw a line in the sand and saying this is the deck should cost this much not this much. Uh, and, and determining what is or is not an appropriate price, but rather saying uh, if you want to pl- if you want to play uh, to be better at the game in order to experience the game before you can even start with that, you have to start with trying to figure out how much to pay for cards like it 's just there's this there 's this intermediate Process You have to go through before you can engage with the content. So like you have to play the game of acquiring cards before you can play the game itself. And, and that's the barrier I think that Jesse highlights as it stands between you and improving at the game. And again, in contrast, you if once you have a PC and you can play Fortnite for free. You download and install Fortnite, you're done. There's nothing left between you and the game, and you can improve with the game. You can become better than Ninja, and it requires you not a dime once you've made that initial investment, whereas Magic, it's like, oh, you want to start playing this? Well, you have to navigate this labyrinth of pricing data um, to figure out what to do and not get hosed financially in order to even get to the game and play it. Um, and in order to play a different deck, in order to practice a different strategy, in order to try different ideas, it costs you more money again, because now you have to purchase other components uh, of the game in order to play it, which again, you don't have to do with games like Fortnite or PUBG or League or Dota or any of those. Um,
0: so, uh, okay, So, so I so see it, that as, 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 a, as,
1: a, as the barrier. I, I have a few po- a few points here.
0: First is, um, absolutely, you can be a person who, because of your socioeconomic scenario the reason you're not going snowboarding or playing magic isn't because you you, the specific price of the snowboard or the magic cards it's because there's not even a shop in your area there's not a structure a a cultural structure in your neighborhood to even introduce you to these things which is very fair correct totally totally fair and 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 um in a situation where the greatest to ever play the game is held back from playing the game there is tragedy there and there's varying degrees of tragedy all the way along that spectrum. Um, but I don't think that you can solve that. In, with <laughs> it's a huge issue. And, and it's, you can't solve that within the microcosm of magic. But I think that it is actually easier to overcome in magic than it is in a lot of other circumstances. Because you literally can't go snowboarding unless you can afford to get to a ski hill you absolutely need to purchase a snowboard at a certain price to play. And my argument earlier was that you can go to the library and print, uh, print off or Kinko's and print off copies of magic cards. In fact, you can get a pencil and a piece of paper and draw, you know, lightning bolt costs one red does three damage and make up your own play test cards. And you, can play this game absolutely for free. Yeah, but I mean that's disingenuous that, 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 too
1: because you now, can't now, that,
0: go to a store and play with those cards. You have to acquire them at some why, point. Why why do players feel like they need to play in the DCI? That's because the biggest that's, scam going.
1: Because that well there's your competition.
0: Yeah, because
2: that that's how like I, I when I was a teenager, I was huge into competitive and I would play for free, you know, Magic Workstation, Apprentice. I, I don't know if either of you used Apprentice way back when. And then you know, once I mm-hmm, yep, yep. was ready to go to a tournament, I would spend, you know, Two three hundred dollars, or borrow half the cards when when I got there to actually play in the tournament. And so yeah, I I did that. But then in order to actually prove that I you know made something good, I I would have to I would have to do that. Um, there's one thing that I wanted to say uh, coming coming into this. Um, I, I was thinking about um, there's a quote I I picked it up from Mark Fisher, but it's from other people before him that. It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I was thinking about that with magic, that it's easier to imagine the end of magic than the end of magical capitalism, that the system that we have is not going anywhere, that it's so impossible for us to think of, you know, wizards coming in and switching everything that it's easier for us to think about magic literally failing and no longer existing first. I I I think that's probably accurate, James. Think think Uh, about.
1: about, Let uh, me respond to that uh, one point though, and then you can, and
0: then I'll switch right back to you. So, um, I, I can easily imagine it because games like Epic have already demonstrated that it's possible. I mean, I play many games that are single purchase games out of the box, and unlike some of the video games, which I want to circle back to don't have utterly broken economics abusive economic systems. But did they um, switch? Did they switch halfway
2: through? Sorry? Did they switch halfway through from a more profitable economic system to a less exploitative one? Which ones are we talking about? Any any of them. I'm that's what I'm saying is that it's not that magic could never have been an LCG or whatever. It's that at this point, it is impossible for magic to switch from what it is To a different system unless magic completely collapses
0: right but what i'm saying is that if that's so much of a problem players would just be leaving in droves and playing these other things which have many of the same characteristics and cost less money so what i'm saying is that you are your article vastly underestimates the utility that players perceive in the economic meta that magic isn't a, a game that exists in spite of its own economy that the economy of magic is part of why we want to play the game not everybody but that a large part of the nucleus is excited about booster packs. They are excited about rarity. They are excited about owning expensive cards. Well, and that's part of the utility they're assigning to the game, and the reason they're paying more for it than they would they would pay if they played something else. That's
1: because all Magic players are degenerate degenerate gamblers. That's because all <laughs> humans are gamblers. Like it is that is an innate part of human being that we want to gamble and get lucky and and be risky, especially with things that are essentially for fun. Uh, So like there's a reason we don't let children gamble. uh, And it's because we recognize that as a, essentially an unpleasant human behavior. So we try and restrict it. So just because people prefer magic because they get to gamble, doesn't mean that we necessarily something we want to encourage, but I want to, I want to rewind just a little bit because we were talking about players getting into the game and how like you had to play this game of acquiring cards in order to play magic. But you can even move that up. You can move that up a half of an economic bracket and say well, you've got somebody who's playing magic who's who has made the jump into standard as an in, and is invested and they built this one standard deck that they want to play with and now they're like oh you know it'd be really great like i think if i added karns to this it would be much better or i think if i switch if i added a color and switched you know if i dropped black and added green and i switched to this mana base and i switched to these creatures the deck will be better well guess what now you have to play that whole game of selling your old cards and acquiring new ones or just acquiring new ones before you can test these ideas and like make them work for you. So again, you see that that marketplace getting in between the player and the actual game of what happens if I drop black from my deck and add green and make that switch. And you can do that in Magic Workshop Cockatrice, you know, whatever platform. You can do that with pencil and paper, completely agree. Uh, but those are those are only Imitations because ultimately, you need in order to like find out if this works, you got to put the cards on the table in an actual competitive environment where people care, where people are trying, and you can't do that with any of those with those proxies, right? You have to own the real cards in order to do that. So again, you can see, and all of us have experienced this, everyone who's ever played Magic has experienced this. You've had a passing thought about how something could be good or worth it, blah, blah, blah. But the effort involved in getting those cards just isn't worth it. So you never explore it. And the game could be be better if we never had that barrier to go through. And it's lower on Magic Online than it is in paper, but it's still there. But you can kind of see how that that creates that barrier, even for an, an established player.
2: And uh, to to follow up, even more fundamental to Magic is how the economic system of it affects the game itself. Because every set that comes out has to have X, Y, and Z. It has to check certain boxes so that the set can both sell well enough and to make uh, card stores enough money. Because of the economic system that it sets up, then it affects what you can release in the future. So, you know... Even if some set would be, you know, the, the, the greatest set ever, even if it actually would make magic a more fun game, if, you know, uh, off the top of my head, I don't know, uh, dual lands is too easy, but what if, you know, in this set, uh, there are no rare or mythic legends because of how it works? Well, that's just something that you can't do because there's too much risk aversion in capitalism. So you, Wouldn't be able to sell it, and even before it leaves Wizards, it's already it affects itself in terms of what it can release. And in the piece, I use Ixalan as a an example of this, of like a set that is very obviously affected by stuff that looks good in a a tagline to to appeal to um, you know younger people to to get them to buy more cards. I mean, I, I agree
0: absolutely. That because of the profit motive, um, the creative process is not going to be pure. I mean, that's self-evident. The, that the best possible set um, is not going to be emergent from that model. Um, now, how you judge fun and utility, however, is, is, I think, important. And I think that the trade-off for having suboptimal fun factor or suboptimal set design may be made up for, for many players, by the utility of the uh, meta economy and the way that it feeds um, the development of various formats. Because the, for- the way that formats for Magic have evolved would not be the same if it were not for rarities and limited set releases, that's for sure. Um, the, set- the formats that we play into now are very much defined by when the cards that are included came out. And so it's entirely possible that in a um, alternate version of the game, it may have stagnated and died for different reasons at an earlier stage. We just don't know.
2: So I think part of the reason that we're not seeing eye to eye on this is we have such different perspectives on like where we approach the game from that you're from more of a business perspective and, and thinking about utility, whereas I'm thinking more in terms of art. And I I think when you approach it in terms of art just the concept of utility doesn't really mesh with it like my favorite band of all time i'd say is probably joy division and it's it's just impossible to think about uh you know a great piece of literature or music or whatever in terms of utility because like what is the utility gained from listening to an album that is actually going to make me sad to listen to like there's there's utility in terms of I enjoyed this or this made my life better in X, Y, and Z way. But I think that there is an alternate, you know, like a theoretical other way that magic could be where if it's focused on art, then it can do different things other than just, as you're saying, like enhance someone's utility. And this is really vague and theoretical, but I just think we have such different perspectives going into games. See, I don't think... I. Utility does not necessarily
0: refer to only economic utility. Like u- utility is a concept that encompasses art. It When somebody buys a piece of art, whether it's a Joy Division album or a painting or um, a pair of running shoes or a dress or uh, a pack of magic cards, they are expressing their utility. They, they are evaluating the utility of that object and spending money on it. And so I I think there's a big difference though, between magic and say a joy division album in the music industry, art tends to come straight from the artist, at least initially before they get wrapped up in the industry and then get, go through the processing (laughs) barrier that the industry sets up. So people alone in their garage form a band, write songs, come up with 16 tracks They approach record labels and the record label cuts three of the best tracks because they don't think they they fit the demographics and the art is corrupted at the secondary stage, what you would refer to as a middleman. Um, And they are. Um, Not only are they extracting economic value from the artist um, in exchange for dubious value provided, but they may also be corrupting and lessening the art. Magic does not come from artists and and then is run through a filter in quite the same way. This IP is owned and controlled by a corporation who bought another corporation at a certain point, and their what they choose to do with that is entirely the right of them and their shareholders. Like you made a point at the end of your article that um, because of how much time and effort and interest we've put into this game, we own this IP. Yeah, I, I just cannot agree with that. I mean, I've been I've been in this game as long as anybody. Um, they don't owe me a thing. They 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 I've made been eyes wide open the entire time. I knew what I was getting into. I've known what was what was being tabled. And I've made judgments along the way about what products I will purchase and not purchase based on my relative utility.
2: I, I guess I whatever just they, don't... Oh, sorry. What
0: Whatever they choose to do is their choice. And if I don't like it, I have thousands of other options. I mean, that's one of the things that really like goads me is that if we're talking about water and it's the only thing any of us can drink then the conditions by which we distribute water and who should have access to it and and everything related to that is fairly self-evident to me. Um, But when we're talking about entertainment product that contains elements of art, but it's essentially product, we are exchanging value for it to occupy our time, and we have many, many options, then if we vote to participate in the game, then we are admitting that there is utility in the model as it exists. It feels to
1: me uh, as someone who's becoming the uh, third party referee in this um, (laughs) that there's a difference here where James you're focusing very much and not, not right or wrong. Just you're focusing on magic in the context of the other products available to it. Whereas Jesse is focusing on appreciation and the game of magic itself independent of the other things, at least at this point is this juncture in the conversation. Um, that, that seems to be a differentiating factor. And that's why you keep J- James referring to the utility and like comparing that to other products. And like Matt, you know, we, we choose to partake because it's got enough utility, blah, blah, blah. Whereas Jess is just like, I don't, I don't care about the other stuff right now. I want to talk about magic. I want magic to be amazing. And I think magic might, you know, in another universe, magic could be better because, we don't have to deal with this in order to experience magic, and I do, and I, you know, and to contribute, I do. Kind of wonder here is, you know, if you went to Rosewater and said you don't create art, I think he'd be a little miffed. Um, and they, they, you know, you can argue that wizards, you know, sort of plays the role of the artist and the middleman. You know, you use the music comparison where the the guys in the garage make the music, and then the middleman chop the tracks out that don't match their demographic. You could say that Wizards is both of those parties. Mark Rosewater is the guy in the garage making Mm -hmm. the card. And then, you know, like whoever it is on R&D, if it's Forsyth or whoever is over on the other half of that, chops out what they feel doesn't fit. But you do kind of wonder, again, if you change the model, um, and, and again, not implying that this will ever happen, but just, you know, theoretically, if you change the model, they can approach that differently, right? Like they don't have to like, oh, you didn't send a. You sent a set with no planeswalkers. Go at a planeswalker because that sells sets. That that would be a conversation that would happen today. Uh, although I'm sure they don't send sets over without planeswalkers in them. But in a in a different universe, that wouldn't have to happen. You wouldn't have to have that conversation because they could focus strictly on what they think the best magic possible is right now, and not well. We have to build the best magic we can right now that will also sell like. Support this whole microcosm that we've built, not just sell packs, but support the whole microcosm because they could put whatever they want in the pack and it would sell like crazy, but it might destroy the microcosm. If it turns out that it
2: requires putting black Lotus at uncommon. I want to follow up on the the music analogy because I think it's an interesting one. So in, in music, basically all of the music that I, that I really love, it's some people or one person makes their music and then, the record label uh, almost always an independent one just releases it and that's what it is and when it comes to music you can really choose like oh you know i like you mentioned uh smashing pumpkins you know if you like that kind of rock you can go with that or as as i do if you want to listen to unlistenable bullshit uh, that only ten people in the world can actually enjoy. <laughs> then you can do that. Yeah, too. Can I just point out? But you absolutely, magic, you
1: absolutely sound like a Joy Division listener, and I don't know what that means, oh, yeah.
2: but I, that made complete <laughs> sense coming out of your mouth. Uh, so, so, but when it comes to magic, because it's controlled by this one corporation who releases sets on a timetable. If you're a magic fan, as opposed to you know what you're most into is music, then what you have to. Uh, consume is really dictated by them. Whereas, you know, if the mainstream music isn't your thing, it's like, eh, actually, I'm really into jazz right now, because oh, yeah. I think that's more interesting. Like, like right now, for example, I don't think that um, rock music that's being played on the radio is just is like, all that interesting. So I can listen to other stuff. Whereas in magic, like there's no, because we've so accepted that magic belongs to Hasbro, there's hasn't really been any Community emphasis on like making stuff ourselves as an alternative uh, um, to what Wizards has been doing. I mean, people attempt it, but it's never really gotten support. Whereas, you know, if four people in a garage make the best album of the year, then there's a decent chance that people are actually going to hear it because it's so much easier to release it.
0: R- but that. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, this would be my point, though, is that in the music industry, the development of various indie scenes has uh, resulted from frustrations with mainstream music and with the the demographic-driven radio play that took over radio stations in the '70s, '80s, and '90s. Um, reinvigorated like micro music scenes all over the world, and. You know where is that in magic? Like one of the questions I would table is in twenty five years, why is there no all time classic fan made set? Bob's. That's a great set. question. You know, like where where is the fan made art product? Because the thing with magic is that the anybody who really really knows it well, and the other thing is that you know this game attracts smart people to begin with. It's not a it's not a game you tend to gravitate
1: towards if you're of low intellect. The because oh, we all know that but you, we got to stop saying it because it just Encourages the worst people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a it's a really it's a very complex game by comparison to many other al- alternatives, right? Completely agree. Uh, completely you agree. know, soccer is two two g- gaps at the end of a rectangle, and you kick a round thing through either. Oh, player. you're getting the question right here, buddy. And, and 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 you can add you can add layers of complexity in strategy beyond that as you get deeper into that model, but. The fundamentals are quite simple. Whereas you, you can explain soccer in 10 seconds. You cannot explain magic in 10 seconds, no matter how many times we've all tried. And so we have a lot of smart people in the game. Um, and yet in 25 years, I can, and as close to the game as I've been through most of that, I cannot name a single piece of fan made art product that is a, is a full set, a draftable cube or anything that Why is famous. Why do you think famous. that is? I, psh.
1: I don't have an answer for that either. I don't don't have an easy answer.
0: I don't have an easy answer for that. I think part of it is things you've already said, that we are trained to accept the game in a certain way. And I think for people that have been around longer than, say, five or 10 years, it, it would be a little bit more evident. The Magic as a community, if you wanted to participate in any form of the community, you had to show up at the the structured tournaments for type one and type two in the early days, because there was literally nothing else. This is pre internet magic, right? Like internet starts to take off 95, 96 as magic is taking off. But you know, the dojo is really kind of like the only thing going for the first, in the late nineties. You know, the mothership takes off. I can't remember if it's before the new millennium or not, but it's very close in there. But the total, you know, from the perspective of today in 2018, where Magic leans heavily on third-party um, YouTube content to
2: sell their product. So um, I, there, there is I, one. I think this is an interesting um, subject to get on. There is one example I can think of of something purely community-based, really taking off, which is EDH and Wizards as a company. And this is outside of just like, oh, it's because they're capitalism. Um, Wizards is kind of unique in. The way that they really feel a monopoly on the way that people talk about the game and the way that people consume the game. Like, I'm thinking about, um, like, I, as I mentioned, I play a lot of League and it seems that when there's a certain term or a certain, uh, thing in the community, Riot Games kind of adopts that and talks like everyone else in the community talks. Whereas Wizards is kind of more of a top down, like, this is what you call stuff. So even when EDH takes off and you know it's coming to the point where they want to officially support it, the first thing they do is rename it. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. You mean commander. And, uh, and, and when something is community focused, they don't really promote the creators as much as just make it theirs. Um, for example, there's a, a friend of mine who has, a, I think, my favorite cube that I've ever played. It's a, a modern era cube and she, she's put so much work into tuning it over the years and Wizards um, uses it for Magic Online. And, and they're just like, oh, this is the modern cube. And they, you know, made X, Y, and Z changes, but they don't really highlight like the community aspects of that. They're just like, this is our thing.
0: I think EDH is a great example, actually. Um, you know, I was thinking in terms of set product or car design. Um, but format design is just as valid because yeah, I can't fucking
2: stand EDH by the way. That'll come out in a lot of my stuff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but so, I, I wanna know why, but that's all right. Just keep going, just keep going. So I mean I would I, I would
0: argue that, you know, as a marketing professional, I can easily see why it's now commander and not EDH, because Elder Dragon Highlander means nothing. And commander is a much more encompassing concept that allows you to explore the space much better conceptually. Um, so I would just argue that that's like the difference between amateur and professional
2: approaches to um, art product or work or, or work well, product. Well, it's a certain sort of kind of professional, because a different company that's more that just has a different attitude would you know take someone else's name and, and run with it. Whereas wizards wizards communication always tend towards like, hello, this is our product that we are releasing. The release date is you know it it all sa- it sounds very corporate. Whereas other companies have a more casual approach to stuff that sounds more fun. And for example, there are lots of companies in their games and their releases can use uh, English words like shit in their official you know, communication about the game. And no one really cares. Whereas uh, Magic's communication is very strictly PG. And these are the things you can say. And these are the things you can't say. Sure.
1: I, I want to chime in here that. For the first time today, I'm going to take a hard line against Jesse here. I am not a fan of companies trying to be my best friend.
2: Uh, I'm not not saying that it's necessarily better. It's just like different companies do it differently.
1: I guess. But like Stakem's on Twitter, that's funny. But like... Most of the time that brands are trying to be really relatable and millennial, it's just no, skin-renderingly no, terrible. It's like, it, if I you agree. exist to sell me something, please don't pretend like we're in any
2: other relationship. I, I, was, I was looking up some <laughs> design jobs and one of them was like, you have to be a level 9001 meme warrior. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this.
0: Uh. (laughs) But I think what you're, you know, the angle you're coming from is more um, not where the corporation is expressing themselves through the try hard model, but where they are legit fans. So as much as they are product producers, right? Like that they're producing the the best um, corporate communications come from teams who are still small and nimble enough to be their own um, clients and customers. So that their communication is um, relatable because it is honest and
1: transparent, which I think and, you see on which I think you see on Twitter, right? Like Wizard website updates posted to the Wizards website tend to be pretty bleached, but if you follow Magic personalities on Twitter, you see people that are in love with the game and are ambassadors for,
2: it, and it feels much more organic. Yeah, uh, the yep. the unfortunate part is that Wizards also chooses like three people that are allowed to talk about the game, and everyone else isn't like. Follow a bunch of Wizards employees on Twitter and a lot of them you can tell are literally just not allowed to talk about magic and it's kind of uncomfortable. Who do you think mm-hmm. that is? Uh, I know specifically, so I can't say. <sighs> hmm. I guess I don't
1: follow. I think it's that there's a lot of employees and I don't know how many like who that would
2: be. Well, there's I mean, so they, they've chosen like Mark Rosewater, right? This is a good like positive example. Mark Rosewater is the voice of magic design, right? That you think of the last time that you saw someone, another designer on Twitter replying to Rosewater, being like, "You know, I disagree. I don't think that that's good design. I prefer this other thing." (laughs) That doesn't happen. But yeah,
1: I I guess I guess from
2: from from my
1: perspective, a I don't follow I don't follow any of the other people, and which may in itself be a point because I would follow them if they said things. But I I always just sort of chalked it up as to them not really wanting to do that. Uh, they, I suppose. I, I suppose, suppose maybe your point is valid that like the, everyone else in R and D is literally not allowed to tweet. Well, I mean, I, I don't think that's unusual
0: though. I mean, in a corporate environment, they they have their roles to play, and and if you're not you're not hired to be a mouthpiece for the corporation, then I mean, you can say whatever you want over beers at a GP, but. It, it, you know, it makes sense. Like that would be a fireable thing in, in companies I've, I've done business with and, and seems normal to me because you can't just assume that that person is going to, whatever they're going to do or say is going to be for the benefit of the game and the community. Maybe because um,
2: maybe we just have different perspectives, but that just like fills me with such a sadness, not like a huge amount, but it just seems so bleak that you're not allowed to express your opinions about magic design when you're employed as a magic designer.
0: Well, that's well, I mean, actually, I, I, feel, I feel differently about it depending on whether or not we're talking about publicly or at the design table. Yeah, yeah. Pu- I mean,
2: publicly. I right. Mean, so, I mean, they-
0: as long, if the same situation is at the design table, which is what I've kind of long suspected, <laughs> was that internally at Magic, if you look at the – what is it? Glass, glass, doors, glass door? Is yeah. Glass door. Glass door ratings for wizards have always been notoriously bad. Um, they're known for underpaying for talent, um, especially on the digital side. And <laughs> Oh, yeah. Employ- employees from all, you know, elements of the company have complained about many different
1: things. Yeah, Jerry Thompson uh, was in a year later and got out. Well, yeah, we've seen. Well, we've seen the
0: the revolving door with many key personalities in the magic community that have been si- sucked up by wizards and spit back out. I mean, and it. To, it very to, much seems as though you either jive with the pre existing culture or you don't.
1: To to Jossie's comment about that that sense of sadness that he gets. Uh, I mean, I guess that is that ties into your larger frustration with, I think, uh, not to overuse the word this evening, but capitalism, because it's no different than if you work at any Fortune 500 or or any company. And, you know, if I work for Boeing and I get on Twitter and I'm like, Boeing's jets are full of shit, they're going to break down the company (laughs) leadership box. Like, I'm going to get a real strong talking to and possibly fired. Like, yeah. you know, you really can't have a job where you go on social media and blast your employer and okay. not get in trouble for it, which is which is, I guess, unfortunate. But like, it's not cons- restricted to Wizards. Well, I,
2: I think it's because it, like, obviously, yeah, no, no one can do that. But it's what, what I'm just trying to emphasize in the piece is how magic is, you know, it's similar to these other artistic things and and other games. But it's really produced and consumed like it was by a huge multinational corporation because it is and it, it and it has been really showing in the game
1: well i appreciate you saying this because it gives me a chance to bring up something that we, we left behind but yeah. yeah you give me a window for it. as i was thinking about the music thing when you guys were talking and we talk about how in the 90s you, you know james you mentioned that interview with uh the idiot and smashing pumpkins and uh, about how they were really upset with how music had been taken over by the, the the record labels and the companies. And they felt like artistically they were being stifled. And luckily, the internet came around, which gave them this new avenue to take their art. And their art was being blocked <laughs> by essentially um, market forces, right? By business interests. Their art couldn't get to the people who wanted it in its purest form because you had this barrier, which were the, which were the record labels. Then this new avenue opens up and they turn around and they go and you get independent labels and music and online distribution and whatnot. And suddenly you kind of have this renaissance where the art is streamlined to the public. And we still have that today. Uh, in, 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 in much more so than we used to anyways. So, and you can kind of convert this to magic where you can have Rosewater and his team building this great product, but it kind of hits this barrier of like trying to produce a product that has to fit within the market forces of that magic has established. And you can't go straight from pure magic to the player. It has to go through this filter of, we have to make sure that it fits within this economic system we've created for magic, which at the end of the day, doesn't feel like it should be good for the game. And we can't say that it is or isn't because we don't really have anything to compare it to, but it definitely doesn't seem like it should be good for it. And it wasn't good for music. So like, why should it be good for this? Did
2: did you ever read the uh, essay by Steve Albini called the problem with music about, um, uh, young artists in a band that are made to swim through a a pool of decaying shit. Uh, Wait, no, no. Does that, does that sound familiar? Anyway, so do you know who, who that is, Steve Albini? Uh, no. no. If you so, give me
1: 30 seconds, I can type his name into Wikipedia and then tell he, you. So you mentioned
2: Cobain. He produced in utero uh, after producing Pixies and I think like literally a thousand other records. He's one of the biggest people in independent music. But um, over the last, you know, 30 years, both from his bands and producing in a very uh, uncompromising style, um. Okay. His his way, and he had this pretty good essay. Uh, I think, even if it is in a very specific kind of language, about the process of like, like you've been saying, kind of converting this music into what's what's acceptable. But um, the the system of magic just doesn't allow for people like Albini to exist because they don't get any power.
0: Well, I mean, there's, there there is no
2: indie magic. Yeah, is, is, I, guess, is I guess if I if I had to write a follow up to this, which I've actually been thinking about, like, um, you know, magical capitalism is there no solution? Uh, the the creation of like an indie magic would would be one of my solutions, but I I just it just seems so unlikely, you know. But um, I think that the what? the politics of magic players aren't there for it to be possible.
0: There are so many dynamics in play that push you into the DCI system. However, I think that there are some interesting things going on in the game that are challenging some of the competitive structures that dominated the first, say, 20 years of the game. The the ascendancy of EDH to the position where I think it's actually the most important format in the game right now. Um, the introduction of Brawl most recently, their continuing attempts to introduce additional casual, um, social, uh, multiplayer formats suggests that all of their demographic research, um, supports less competition and more fun. Um, they're de-emphasizing of the pro tour, um, the way that they handed off tons of GPs to a single vendor. I mean, all of the, and, and getting rid of their, um, community manager, Helen. Um, after many, many years, um, all of this suggests to me that they are moving, they are attempting to steer slightly away from the competitive s- stream of um, promoting the game and leaning into the social and content producer side. Because I think what they've realized is that the number of views that a uh, high level, um, relatively, you know, amateur content producer like the, say, Tolarian Academy the number of YouTube views that he gets versus the total number of views of all four pro tours in a year. It's not even close. Like the professor kills the pro tour and that, and that's just one guy. That's not the plethora of people that are making content in various spheres. And so, Wizards marketing team has realized, as many companies have, that getting other people to sell your product is much cheaper and often more effective because it's more genuine and tends to target smaller pockets of different demographic interest um, more effectively than trying to hit everybody over the head with the big, huge competitive stick and ending up burning people out because they can't handle the grind.
2: I think part of what it is is also... uh they're making as much mad money as they can from competitive players. So now it's time to turn to casual players to get more money out of them too, which is probably just a more cynical restatement of what you said. But I think it's also true. Like if competitive players are spending $500 per deck and casual players are spending $50 per deck, then the problem is that casual players aren't spending enough.
0: Well, it's more that like EDH is a... Um... Uh, eternal format in the sense that it includes the cards from virtually the entirety of the game's history, but because it's non-competitive, it allows people to form play groups that can establish their own comfort level with how aggressive they want the deck constructions to be. So it leaves it up to the social networks to determine power level, which acts as a barrier deconstructor, if you will, to... Um, that is impossible in the competitive scene. Because as you said, if you want to compete in legacy and there's only, say, six viable tier one decks in that format, and, and the one that you think might be the best in the meta in any given weekend is $7,000 that you don't have, then you have a very clear economic barrier to your access to that form of the game.
1: I, I want to hop in here uh, and throw out one, one more idea that we haven't covered that I also thought was really interesting from the blog was the um, the fact that we sort of lose Magic's history through this. Um, for instance, uh, Innistrad draft, the original Innistrad draft was extraordinarily popular. It's considered one of the best draft sets of all time by everyone who played it. But there's a key. If you start Magic today, you basically don't get to enjoy that. You don't get to explore that draft format, which is essentially a form of art. It is a creation uh, clearly designed by by Wizards employees because there's no way to make that experience available to people outside of the magic economic framework so they can't experience it which is really unfortunate because you have all of these old sets where you have these great draft formats that are just sort of lost to the aeons because we don't have a way to do it you can play them online moto has like flashback phantom drafts but they dole them out Rare, you know, not often. It's not on demand. Whatever formats you want, and you know, given how bad the digital platform is, you don't get. You know, it's it's basically not worth it. And you could make the point that there aren't that many that are worth going back to, um, because it's taken them a long time to figure the draft format out. But with every progressive year, we're expanding the number of good draft formats. And you know Jesse brings up Magic 25 or Masters 25 as having been an awesome draft format that was completely lost because it was really expensive and the EV was awful. So nobody ever wanted to play it, but it was in fact excellent. And I can't speak to whether or not that's accurate, but it's a fair point. And even if it's not true in this case, it could be true down the road. So in a way that you have old artwork, pictures or or paintings, photographs, books, music, movies, all of the old comp, all the old material and content is available to everyone basically all the time we go the other direction with magic where it gets harder and harder to engage with original content you only have you essentially have the per, a permanent recency bias which is unfortunate
0: right because they want you to buy the hottest newest yeah. thing yeah i mean this part this part i fully agree with i have no debate here the, the you know you you explained it very well and jesse did as well um in in the article the if one of the goals of being a magic player who truly appreciates the game is that you want to have access to its best, um, forms, formats, decks, um, moments, then, you know, absolutely. The economic structure of the game is a barrier to your access to those things because wizards deliberately takes them off the table and hides them from you and tries to give you something new that may or may not be good.
1: Yeah. And I, and I guess, you know, I, I guess there isn't really a, a solution readily available here which Jesse you had said people gave you crap for not having a solution in your article and honestly I read it and I don't know what solution they're supposed to be I don't know how you're supposed yeah. to respond well, to all of this, this like this one, it's just it's just it's worth being aware of all of this and as a, and as a lens to through which to see magic and perhaps that can better inform your decisions in your life outside of magic but I mean I'm with you that I, I
2: don't know what you're supposed to so, so to this recommend. one actually um I think it does have a straightforward solution. And I think that this solution is the most plausible of all of them, which is, you know, my solution isn't over, over overthrowing capitalism, at least not this time, but Should just, be. just, just reprint the old sets, just fire up the, the presses again. And, you know, like, Hey, we're this summer, we're, uh, reprinting Lorwyn and it's 90 bucks for a box. You know, like I think that's a, a pretty easy solution. And I don't think it's even that implausible. Um, I think there are even people within Wizards that um, advocate for that as a solution because it's, you know, the the master's model has been kind of, I'm sure that you guys have talked about the master's sets, how they've been kind of not doing well for the last couple. So, you know, as an alternate model, just, you know, reprinting Innistrad, um, yep. you know, maybe you have to put it in newer frames with new Oracle text, whatever. I think that this data actually is possible. And then, you know, people can get to draft Odyssey or whatever. It would be-, be cool.
1: Interesting. And I, I don't know how this would work. And I haven't thought through it. So I'm just going to put it out there for 4,000 people to hear and then tell me I'm an idiot to print a set, Lorwin, Odyssey, Innistrad, uh, gold bordered, right? Like And charge 20 bucks for it. Here's 20 bucks for a box of Innistrad. It is a one-time draft product. And then the cards are gold-bordered, so you can't actually use them. It's not going to destroy the value of Snapcaster Mage because they're still not legal. Uh, but it does give you a chance to try it out. <laughs> which, which, which then gets into all sorts of issues on the secondary market with gold-border cards, making the black-border cards relevant, and essentially Wizards printing their own counterfeits, essentially, or their own proxies. So like, there's a lot to dig through there. But it is one possible scenario. I mean, I love the
0: con the concept of leaning on non tournament legal cards, but I can understand fully why it's yeah, I, net net bad for the brand. I, I from don't the think perspective do that.
2: Of, Honestly, I think that just it, it, it's a lot of feel bad. Straight up reprinting the, old I, I, sets I guess, is more plausible.
0: Yeah, yeah. The problem with that though is that if the if the EV of the set in question is too high, then you run into the same problem as the master sets, where you're trying to balance off what is the how much of the value in this set is because the cards are in high demand versus in low supply? And the problem with both Iconic Masters and and Masters 25, um, well, the primary problem was that they split one what should have been one great set into two mediocre ones. But the, um, the other issue was that they, you know, with a card like Impero Recruiter, they were forced to evaluate... And of course, they do this. I mean, you talked a little bit in your article about how they aren't willing publicly to talk about the secondary market. That's just coming from the legal team. Like, that's – they would be more than happy to do that and acknowledge that they <laughs> they obviously are analyzing that all the time. I mean, you can't construct a set without thinking about the economics of it. So, it's, it's never been – I don't think – to anybody who's really thinking about it or understands, you know, business or economics – there's no doubt that they do that. It's just, you no, know, they're not allowed that's, to talk. That's
1: messy on the other side because you have Innistrad where the card prices are nuts and they're like, shit, if we print this at 90 bucks or whatever, we've decided that going rate is for these reprinted sets. Like there's way too much value in the cards and it's going to screw things up. And then on the other side of that, yeah. you have Invasion. Where like this is a great draft format, but how are we going to charge ninety bucks for a box of this? Nobody's going to want to buy it because they're just lighting their money on fire because there's nothing in here. There's like literally nothing in this box that's worth any money, or Nemesis or Prophecy. So So it's like you're going to have some sets that cost way too little for what's in them and way too much for what's in them.
2: I mean, you can solve it. Maybe solve other problems. Just throw full art lands at it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> i've got a better idea
0: I, I i think i've got the solution for this actually the, the way that you handle this is that you sell um cubes to lgs's that can be drafted for this purpose and they're large cubes like like so they have a lot of they, they have a lot of redraft ability um yeah, that would be like be great. a thousand a thousand innistrad cards or whatever that have been picked so that you pick random packs out of it and you're going to get a good draft Ooh. and the and the borders on them are unique, so and they're not for resale, and the so the vendors agree that if they're going to get these things, they're not going to um, resell them at all. So none of us should end up with them in our hands. Of course, we will, but the you know, in theory, um. And then the LGSs get a way to bring people in to do this awesome fun thing that you can't do at Walmart. And okay, I, yeah. I could see wait, them wait, making a work. I just had a
1: great idea. You sell a box. Of say five hundred guards, well, we're going to go with Innistrad, and it is a, a it's not sold as sealed packs, so you have enough commons, for instance, to introduce variants within the commons in your draft environment. Um, so you don't end up, for instance, knowing that there is exactly two spider spawnings in your in your your box of Innistrad. There is some number, but all of the cards are the very high quality. Like uh, like silicone or whatever it is that they use for high quality playing cards. Like if you have ever been to a casino or played with real poker card, poker uh, the mm-hmm. the a deck of cards is like twenty five dollars because those cards are really high quality and meant to be used a lot. Mm-hmm. So so if you really? if you print five hundred of those cards for Inastra and you sell people a box with reusable like little draft pack type things and they go okay here you go you can build your Innistrad packs, draft them, and then when you're done, shuffle all the commons, uncommons com- and rares separately, rebuild packs, and then draft again. You're never going to get the same experience twice because we've given you enough cards to produce the variance that you would see within a draft run. The cards are really high quality, so they're you can keep doing it over and over and you're not going to ruin them. And they're because they're made of a different, pro- a different physical product or different material, you don't run the risk of... Uh, they're not legal, right? They're not legal in Magic. You can't use them. And like, it'd be even tough to use them in EDH because they're like thicker, or whatever, and they don't fit in the sleeve the same way. So um, it, it's not the same thing as a normal Magic card. So it makes it hard to cross those products. And then you can just put the whole damn Magic catalog up on the shelf. You can say each one of the old sets, 500 cards, uh, you know, is $75 each. And then you can go buy them like you buy board games, right? Where like, oh, yeah, I'm still missing this one. Oh, you have World Wake. I'll get. I'll get rises the Aldrazzi so that I have this one, and then you can build your library of draft sets. So here's the I like thing. that idea.
0: Yeah, uh, I do too. But the, but here's the thing: I, I think that the 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 problem here that we're overlooking is that if we're still operating with if everything else about the Magic economic model hasn't changed, and this product appears on shelves, it actually runs contrary to the interests of both Magic and their second and their vendors, um, in the sense that again. The, the thing that's best for them is to sell more product over and over and over again. If if the market was so hungry for these like draftable cubes or being able to draft old sets, they would already exist. Because the secondary, the large secondary vendors like Star City Games and Card Kingdom and so forth have the, the inventory in stock to assemble these cubes and sell them as product. And yet they only sell those kinds of things in very limited quantity uh, to
2: a very select. That's cube. not really true. Card Kingdom is literally selling cubes right now. I think they've sold a bunch of them. Yeah, I know.
0: Okay. I know, but what percentage of the magic community owns one? It's less than one percent. It's don't know. way less than one percent. It's one one out of every thousand, probably. I mean, I one of the things that I think we overlook, those of us that are really close to the game, is that Magic claims something like fifteen million players worldwide. And even if you, you know, assign twenty-five percent of that to corporate nonsense and say there's twelve million. And then compare that to the number of players that have DCI numbers that play in a GP or even an FNM in a given year, that number might be no more than a million to two million. So we know that like 70, 80, maybe even 90% of all magic players are completely outside the FNM tournament GP scene, which means that most magic is still being played at kitchen tables with random ad hoc decks. So a lot of the arguments that we have about accessibility and access, especially things like legacy and whatever, I think applies to a a tiny minority of the overall magic community.
2: Well, I I think that it still applies to casual people because um, uh, something I I talk about is how people that are newer to magic don't know enough about magic to know how to play magic cheaply. and. One of the biggest objections when I uh, meet people that are playing Magic recently is like, oh yeah, I'm spending so much money on it because they're just you know buying random boosters or whatever and then cracking them and and that's their card. So no, ma- magical capitalism still affects people that um, are more casual, but just in a in a different way. Yeah, yeah, they're not spending uh, three thousand dollars on a, a copy of Tabernacle, but they're still spending. Um, a lot of money relative to another game just to, just for an introduction to the game.
1: This actually just got me thinking I had, it hadn't occurred to me until just now, but uh, I have a friend online who I've been playing video games with for years. And he messaged, you know, it came up recently. He mentioned that he had been playing some magic on, I don't remember exactly how he He had had engaged with magic somehow and decided he kind of wanted to get into it. And like, When he started asking me questions, he wasn't asking me like, how do I build a better deck or how do I draft or what's good or anything? He asked me like, how do I sell the cards I got from my first draft? And like, how do I build a dinosaur deck cheaply? And should I sell the valuable card that I open? Like all of the information that he wanted from me wasn't about how to play magic, which might be a good idea because terrible magic uh but it's a good thing this isn't recorded so no one will hear me (laughs) say that um he wanted to know how to engage with the market right like that's what his primary concern was how do i do this without spending a fortune and i think and that kind of wraps around to like what i thought was a major thrust of the article and one of the best one of the best points it brought up was he's a new player and he's being taxed he has to learn how to how to. How to, He has to learn how to afford it as best as he can, rather than just getting to learn how to play the game. And, uh, you know, you can point to there being very cheap ways to play Magic, which I completely agree with and I understand. But you have to learn that first um, and appreciate that before you, you know, but that still has to be something you have to learn where you don't have to learn how to play Fortnite cheaply. You just download it and you go.
2: It's kind of like speed running a game. Like, yeah, you can beat Fallout in 10 minutes, but you have to spend a thousand hours playing it to figure out how. Yeah. Sure.
0: I mean, it's it's interesting though. I mean, I certainly don't resent having to go through that because we all did. I mean, it was actually worse in the mid-90s because (laughs) other than a monthly copy of InQuest, you had no access to market information. There was certainly no price guides online. And trading in those days was much more cutthroat than it is today. I mean, these days you know, if you're trying to trade $50 worth the cards, you're going to get within 2% of $50 worth the cards. Back then it was about trying to like, you know, people were sharking each other for whatever the other guy wasn't at the last tournament. So he doesn't know this card is good now. So I'm just going to suck it out of his binder and, you know, trade him off yeah. some nonsense. And that was going on left, right, center.
1: So that's a terrible pu- radio show, by the way. So, I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, so I
0: mean, I I don't resent it, but I'm sure, I, I, and I think that the average player, in in the ignorance of early play, doesn't resent it either. There's probably a feel bad moment if you run into an economic barrier and realize you've been doing it wrong or you haven't been optimizing. You're not min maxing. It's the same as in a video game. <laughs> you 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 start banging your head against the wall in Fortnite after your first few games, you can't realize why you die all the time. And then you realize you had, there's a building economy. And if you can't build as fast as the other guys, then you realize
1: the game's bad and you shouldn't be wasting your time with it.
0: (laughs) So actually I, I I wanted to, to circle back into the discussion of game uh, economy, video game economies, because you had both brought up games that I thought were interesting as uh, comparisons because the economics that you were describing there to me are not free. Um, my take on the games, the the most common game model right now, which is adopted by PUBG and Fortnite and and League and many other of the most popular PC games on the planet, um, and also some console games, is this concept that the game is free now. You don't pay for it, you know, the way that Call of Duty still charges like sixty bucks for the game or eighty bucks for the game, and then fifteen dollars every three months for the quarterly content. Um, you you get the game for free, but they try to hook you into the um, the social economy where if you are serious about the game, you buy all yeah, the new Yeah, it's skins. a free-to-play model. Now, sure. Now, the problem with that model is it actually leans heavily on abusing people that have OCD, that feel the need to complete sets of everything, that have uh, mental disorders or uh, gambling or spending problems. And the industry is well aware of these issues
1: and many good
2: articles but, have been written so, mean, about it. Isn't that so, true for Magic then too, for the same reasons?
1: I don't know. Do you think it is? I mean, you, you could make if, the point that magic is not sustained by whales, uh, a whale being someone who outspends their peers by a magnitude or
2: two, you know, that's uh, the gap, I th- I mean, I that's that the gap between stores, magic and, and fortnight. I, I think that card stores are sustained by them. You know, like when I worked for card kingdom, you know, and we put up a copy of like a near Mint or excellent black Lotus or whatever. And some guy, uh, spends his his money on that then it's going to sustain us for a while like i i mean there's there's an indirect there right that's the main difference between magic and these other models is that your money isn't is never going directly to wizards you're always buying it from a retailer
0: yeah it's i know it's tough somebody who's buying a black lotus i don't think is necessarily being abused or isn't it is not is in a position of disadvantage they could be you can still be OCD or something else that makes you feel like compelled to complete sets of things. And anything that has a set is therefore going to be potentially abusive of your situation. Um, But I would argue that magic has a very rich social tapestry community and history um, with a lot of different like angles. Like you can be really appreciative of the narrative. You can be very appreciative of the, like the, Um, artwork on the cards you can be really a huge fan of the game dynamics or um, of a certain format and because it there's a lot of different ways to enjoy magic and you can and i don't just mean within the context of playing the game i mean the economy is is one like i play less and do the economy more and i would argue that that's just as valid of a way to enjoy the hobby Um, Uh, you could be much more into, like, you could be a judge who spends more, more of your time helping other people to play the game than you do actually playing it. Um, there, there are so many different angles there. I think that you can, I think it's different. Like, I think that in magic, my perception is that there are definitely whales, but they are not necessarily being abused. They're just fully committed to the hobby. And And so so there, there are poo tends to be
1: much higher. So I'm going to hop in here. Uh, I, I'm I'm more on J- James's side here. I don't think that you can easily draw a correlation between people who spend a lot of money on Magic and the true whales of video gaming. I think there are, are, are distinct differences there. Uh, but I, I think that's beside the point. I also think... I'm not defending the free-to-play model at all. It is extremely predatory. And I know the EU recently was considering some ramifications of the loot box system. And I almost think they had to like they they are telling somebody they had to rip that out of their game, right? Or like everybody that you couldn't do that shit over in Europe. Um and and if I was
0: wizards, I that would give me pause because loot boxes are not tremendously different from randomized booster packs with rarity.
1: Yeah, so the the point being is that I'm not defending those economic models at all. I think that they are predatory. I think they're dangerous. I think they teach kids how to gamble, and I think that you may see the end of them within the next decade because governments may, you might start seeing parents realize what's going on and pushing legislation up to the government uh, to make that stuff illegal because really it's essentially a casino for children. It was mostly meant to illustrate a point of how you could play a game like Fortnite without without having to spend money. Um, even though you very obviously can, since they wouldn't exist if they weren't making money somewhere. And you could also go with any other single player title that gives you a, a higher barrier of entry, you know, the, the latest Fallout, Morrowind, De- Destiny, whatever, um, <clears throat> where you pay your 60 bucks to get in the door, but then there you go. The entire game is laid out for you. You could also, in even better, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, and you know, if we think about this instead of like a light switch, but rather a grayscale, you could say, wow, an RPG sit somewhere in the middle where you purchase the game and then you have to make a monthly payment. So you are continuing to put money into the product as long as you want to keep up with it and enjoy sure. it. Uh, but there's but once you pay for wow, you kind of have the whole game laid out for you. And even still not completely, right? Because there's a market and an economy within WoW as well. Oh. And I didn't play it, so I'm not exactly clear how much content is gated behind becoming a, a wow auction house baron um but you certainly don't need to spend the amount of real dollars you have to put into wow on a monthly basis in order to continue playing is set and then anything you do within the game uh is sort of up to you and that's part of the game of wow whereas with magic it's like the amount of money you spend is variable uh the more you want to play the game generally the more you money you have to put into it and also like once you're in the game I, I, they're different i think wow closer but they're still they're still that distinct
2: I, I feel like both of you in a little bit are making excuses for magic in terms of how it's so different from free-to-play because you were uh james you were pretty harsh on free-to-play as like being exploit uh, exploitative and certainly like a lot of the models are really bad and and worse than magic in terms of just like straight up a game that exists in order to uh exploit people with um certain kinds of issues. You're you're definitely right there. But I a lot of those things that you're saying, like you you seem to acknowledge that yeah, loot boxes aren't that different from a booster pack. I mean a booster pack is just an IRL loot box. Like I don't think that these things are are that far apart. And but one thing that does set them apart is that in these free-to-play games, like the ones that I feel are, I don't know how to put it legit and not just pay to win or like paying like uh, existing to uh, exploit um, people for money that like people that buy skins in league kind of subsidize a lot of people that play for zero dollars yeah. and zero cents, you know, whereas that doesn't really exist in magic.
0: Yeah. Hey, I think your I think your challenge on loot boxes versus, versus booster packs is accurate. I just question whether booster packs are really the heart of the game.
2: Um, are really sorry. Really not part of the game.
0: No, are are really the, of the heart, heart of the game. Of the game. I, I think that there are so many ways to interact with magic that that could that can involve you never touching a booster pack. Well, they're the heart. The, of,
2: there are quite a lot. of... It's where literally every card comes from, right? So someone has to handle that booster pack. I know, but
0: yeah, I know. But the the lottery ticket aspect is specific to people that buy booster packs and open them, hoping to get good things, and then right on average. Yeah, most yeah. people just buy some And, and,
2: and
0: I, it, well this is this is why I'm calling it the question. I don't think the point is lost. I think the point is worth us discussing further. Because for somebody who is addicted to opening booster packs, I don't think there's any difference. I think it is almost exactly the same thing. And and that it predates loot boxes and probably informed them. <laughs> yeah. So the um because the, you know, for some people that just started playing TCGs like in the last 5 or 10 years, they don't really don't get it. How revolutionary it was for there to be rarity and limited set releases in an era where most families were still playing Monopoly.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that, I think that free to play would be comparable to Magic. Um, The loot boxes, honestly, I've never played one of the games where like you had to get stuff out of loot boxes in order to play. But um, all the ones that I've done, it's just cosmetic stuff. And I would have much less of an issue with Magic if you just like, got all the cards for free and they sold booster packs that were just foil versions, you know, like the, the shards of Alara Lara one. Uh, I think that would be more comparable to the loot box model, but for magic, it's like you, you have to put that in. So that, that's where, that's where I think that free to play is it um, imperfect and certainly can be just really awful for the reasons you said, but it, it, it ha- has a lot of advantages for players over what magic is doing.
1: Now, there is an interesting model. You have Magic basically as it is today, but you dramatically reduce the cost of the packs, but they have no foils. And then you sell packs of that set That are all foil with like also like alternate art, like special (laughs) stuff.
0: Yeah. And then they're like five
1: times as expensive, 10 times as expensive. And it's like, well, you can play the game and get the cheap normal versions here. But if you want the cool, nice ones, you got to pony up.
0: And and that might be a viable model. I'm not sure it's better for players net net. Um, it I, certainly removes ac- accessibility barriers, but at the cost of of harvesting from whales right So yeah, you can make all I sorts of arguments about whether that's better or worse.
1: I guess that's that's I guess the inventions the uh, the, uh, the masterpiece series is the tip of the iceberg what, on that what, right was
0: part of that yes because yeah. the whole idea there was to reduce the cost of standard by
1: leaning on the whales. Right, so I mean, we've already seen them flirt with that, and it and it had an appreciable effect. Standard prices definitely went down when masterpieces were in packs, and now Dominaria doesn't have them, and standard prices are back up again um, because you don't have exactly. that eating the so price. Th- of packs. This reminds so,
2: me of um, the the kids' book Holes, which I read probably a dozen times when I was a kid. There's a scene in the book where uh, all the kids are given, I think it's like a a, a ten minute shower per day, and uh, so the the main character uh points out like well we spend like uh two minutes of it just soaping up and we don't really need the water so what if the water like comes on for two minutes and then turns off and then comes back on for eight minutes so it uses just as much water and but it's better for us and all the kids are like wow that's a great idea and so then the uh, adults are like wow that is a great idea so instead of a 10 minute shower it's going to Go on for two minutes, turn off for two minutes, and then uh, go back on for the remaining six minutes, and we've uh, ended up saving water. So, hooray for us! And then everyone's really mad at him because he cost them two minutes of hot water. So, I feel like these solutions that Wizards does uh, <laughs> in order to like you know do this in order to make standard cheaper, they just like keep everything as expensive and then make more money in a different way because that's obviously better for them.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're, you're correct. You're absolutely correct. I mean, at the end of the day, they're a company that exists within a capitalist system and there's, they have to maximize their profits and profits and you and I can hate that as much as we want. Uh, but that's not getting, you know, the revolution is not tomorrow. So and I, I'm not saying this to, to excuse it, I guess it's just an unfortunate reality.
0: And, and I think that we do ourselves a disservice if we don't, acknowledge that if there was so much utility utility to be captured if there was so much benefit if we want to step away from the word utility to the player base to simply design our own sets self-organize our own tournaments and roll with that then why hasn't it happened because we're fighting like like, a capitalist the, 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 system
2: to do it the same reason that at least in this country we don't have but, universal health care
0: but sure. But where where are the champions of, of social justice to step forward and say, I've got great ideas for a set. I'm just going to put it together. It's not going to violate any of Wizards um, trademarks. It's just going to, you know, things are just going to be called generic things. We're not going to use the mana symbol. We're going to sidestep all the stuff just the way Hex did. And, you know, I've put out Doug's set. Meet me at the Legion Hall at Friday night at 8 p.m. And I will hand you out your free packs or they cost a dollar because I printed them off the printer.
2: The reason that I think that can't happen is that you really have to fight the system of magical capitalism because like Star City Games, when you write an article about strategy, they're going to publish it because it links to uh, all of their stuff so that you can buy cards from them, right? But if you write something about like... Hey, we shouldn't do this. We can just play this for free. Like, what magic site that exists to make money selling cards is going to to sell it? And then Wizards isn't going to promote it certainly. So, like, well, we brought you on this cast. I mean, that's true. I've, I've. Let's be serious. Yeah, but there's no money involved
1: in this anywhere for anybody. Oh, I don't know what you're (laughs) talking about. I made money (laughs) for this. Hell yeah!
0: Thank you, Patreon. (laughs) I mean, that. Well, I mean, that's not true because the vendors. The majority of the major vendors in the U.S. pay MTG price to produce this content.
1: So let me me chime in and answer your question. What I think is the answer to your question is the reason nobody's done it is essentially because everyone is pacified for the most part. Like Wizards gives us new product every three months and there's other stuff tossed in in between. And that's a pretty breakneck pace. Uh, for cover for content of this scope and scale and quality. Um, so I think I think I think a good way to do this is to think backwards. What when would we see people create their own sets and to, for this sort of groundwork to be built? When 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 Wizards of the Coast stops printing Magic, when Wizards of the Coast says Magic is dead, we're done. We're walking away from it. The same as we've seen with other card games. The same as we saw with the Star Wars TCG. That's when I think the the player the existing player base stops up and starts to build their set. It starts building these own sets where Sam Black calls up Randy Bueller and is like, "Hey, I still want to make more Magic sets." And then you have that getting done uh, in people's basements and then released to the public. So that means if. If it has, to, if magic has to end for that to occur, which I think is, is not unreasonable and unrealistic, then why aren't we doing it now? And it's because we're still getting sets on a regular basis. So it's almost like, yeah, we could do this, but like it's just not worth it yet because we're still getting, you know, our sustenance. We're still suckling at wizard's teeth for the I, time I that- and we don't need it to pull away. yet. And I also want to point out that there's no way you could do this in your basement with any meaningful impact on everyone else in the world, because you would have to make it so different from magic that it would not work with the game because wizards would be so far up your ass with lawsuits and copyright infringement that you could not put anything out the door that looked you know, remotely like a magic card or even played like a magic card uh, because they don't want that kind
2: of crap. I think on. that it could happen if magic released too many really bad sets in a row. Um, in the past, I think they've been successful in, uh, I don't know how this sounds really cynical, but I don't mean it that way in weaving in enough good sets with really shitty ones in order to, no,
0: no, I think that's, no, I think that's accurate. Right. I mean, they're, they're blunt. They don't have a refined, uh, artistic process. Um, They are large. It's, it's a lot of trial and error and their resources are relatively limited and Hasbro from as from a top-down perspective is essentially a merchandising licensing and distribution company they're not particularly good at technical they're not particularly good at um uh design and so they they don't understand magic the product all that well probably and a lot of that (laughs) comes down um on wizards and leaves them kind of stranded without the high level like um intelligence and analytics that some other company like say they were a small video game publisher that had been brought in under the Activision um, super label, they would have access to a lot more um, in terms of being able to zero in on what the optimal form of their product is. Um, But I think there's I I have another idea to float by you guys that I want to hear your feedback
1: on, which is that... Okay, um, But I'm going to tell us out there, we're an hour and 52 minutes. So this idea has to wrap up... (laughs) Sure. Um,
0: So that it doesn't really matter whether we're at 63% or 72% or 81% uh, efficiency in terms of overall product um, value. Because magic as a product is more about uh, leveraging recency and conflict to generate hype cycles and sell product than it is about optimizing the product itself. And by that, what I mean to say is that the players don't actually give a shit whether they're drafting Inistrad or
2: Ixalan, as
0: long as they get something new every three
2: months. I I think that eventually they start giving a shit. I think that you can throw them a bad set every now and then, and they deal with it because they they remember a good one. They're like, oh, well, this one's really bad, but you know, the next one that comes around will be will be decent. I think that if you, yeah, you can release one Avison restored. I think that if you follow it up with three more successive Avison Restoreds, I think that people would start uh, basically revolting. I mean, that's what Fallen now, Empires now, in the
1: Homelands was, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Now, were you talking about Avison Restored from the perspective from of the, the draft? draft? Yeah. They, sure. Yeah. So, so I would argue that if your sets fall flat in all quadrants, so... Nothing good for EDH, the draft experience is bad, sealed experience and pre releases was bad, and standards a lame duck, and there was nothing new for modern. A dragon's name Serious problem. Okay, sure. <laughs> that's a great example. Yeah. So a I, I set that it produces essentially nothing but voice of resurgence. Um, the, you know If you chain those together, I agree. That, that's where you get a problem. But I think that my, my point is that as long you can be mediocre with magic, and that a lot of it actually is and get away with it because the community feeds
2: off hype cycles and prices. i think that the reason it works is because of vendors um i was working for card kingdom uh during the time had dragon's maze come out or was it i forget if it was out already i think it was out already and in the back we just had like send me your resume and i'll dozens tell you. and dozens of cases i mean i could look it up we had dozens of cases of dragon's maze just like on fire sale that no one wanted to buy and you know. Uh, right. if, uh, if big vendors like that lose money on successive sets, then I think that stuff would start to change even before it changed for, for players. Cause yeah, if you lose money on one, you're like, well, that sucks. We are, you know, we take a hit, we have to cut pay by this, this, and this, but then, you know, the next set you, you go back to doing well again. Well, if
0: the, if the vendors are taking a hit, It's already changed for players. That's how they took the hit in the first place. the The players, the players' expression of of interest and satisfaction, equals how many cases are sitting around. But I think that they're
2: not doing it by you know demonstrating in the streets or even like going to Reddit and ranting. They're just like, "Eh, I'll take this week off drafting. You know, more more silent consecutive decisions. Or oh yeah, it's it's
0: voting with your wallet exactly.
2: Exactly, and you know, only buying that voice of resurgence from the set and. And none of the other ones. Um, I, I guess I know that we have been going on for a while, but this is one of the strangest things I think about the the system is that like they release this set, you know, the the highest art form that the game has, this new enormous set, and they're really proud of everything about it. And the response of a large contingent of players is like, uh, but which do I get for for my existing deck?" And it's just like appreciating it in this this really strange way i think
0: are you talking about dominaria um, any of any set any set oh no you're, you're just talking about the model by which we we can't just enjoy the play experience we have to consider the economics. yeah
2: and it, it, we, we have to consider like both the economics and like the i i will use your word because it's appropriate here utility like what is the utility of you know four copies of this Tarmogoyf from my from my deck and something i brought up is like how bad it is for a set to be unappreciated when it uh when it comes out one of my all-time magic memories i think is uh being on mtg salvation and during the spoiler season for i'm sorry uh, oh it was it was a lot of fun i loved it um <laughs> I was there too. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <there. laughs> in the spoiler season for Future Sight, someone's uh form signature, this is back in the day with form signatures, was uh, Future Suck, the worst set since Homelands.
1: And it, it just
2: really shows like how how worthless a set is if it just like comes out and no one knows what to make of it. For the purposes mm. of like this economic model.
1: All right. Well sure. We're we're gonna have to leave it there. Uh, Jesse, do you have any last 30 second soundbite you would like to share with our listeners? Um,
2: I, I just hope that people enjoy the article. I hope that it makes people uh, think more about both um, the economic system of the game and maybe pull the lens out a little bit and look at the economic system about everything that we're living in. Um, if you want to read it, uh, blog.killgold.fish. Um, if you want to give me money for it, because I too live in capitalism, uh, just go to <laughs> patreon.com slash kill goldfish.
1: All right, Jesse, uh, at Col- kill goldfish on Twitter. We really appreciate you coming Thank on you so and chatting with us. I-, I think it was a great time. Yeah. Um, thanks very much, Jesse. Okay. Thank you again. So that's a wrap for this week, folks. Uh, where can our
0: listeners find you, James? You guys can find me on Twitter at mdg critic, as well as via my weekly articles on mdgprice.com. I'd also like to shout out to Zekeel Gordon, guest writer on mdGprice.com this week, uh, who posted video and an article talking about how he traded up into a
1: beta Black Lotus. Uh, check that one out and give him uh, a holler back. All right. And I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. You can find me every Monday at mtgprice with the Watchtower series and also occasionally on the webcast Cartel Aristocrats. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader
0: service for just four ninety nine a month or forty nine ninety nine per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online
1: collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 118, our quickest episode yet. Uh, Thanks for joining me, James, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis, and we'll see you guys next week on another episode
0: of MTG Fast Finance.